0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Rail Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into The Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Axness, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 rescue concepts because you don't know what you don't know. And Airwave. The Airwave performance mouthpiece, helping you to use breathing to your advantage. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945. Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproofed handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome! If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's AXNES.com. You just make sure you tell them, Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, long line, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots, an experienced crew, They are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REAL RESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners Petzl and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr 3 rescueconceptscom Mention this podcast and they'll take care of the rest. And airway. What if I told you that you could train harder for longer and recover faster just by wearing a mouthpiece? I know. I questioned it too. Then I gave it a try. The Airwave Performance Mouthpiece is a breakthrough in performance technology that is scientifically proven with over 15 years of peer-reviewed published research at the Citadel to open your airway by 25% for improved breathing, resulting in a 20% decrease in respiratory rate, an increase in muscular endurance, and 50% reduction in cortisol levels post-workout. Now, What does this mean to me? Well. Now I'm able to train harder, recover faster, and be even more prepared for when that SAR alarm goes off. You don't need to take my word for it. Try it yourself and see how you can use your breathing to your advantage. Go to airwave.com or visit them on Instagram at airwave to learn more about it. Then, when you're ready to give it a try, because you heard about it here at The Real Rescue, you get 10% off with the promotion code Real Rescue, R E A L R E S Q. Coming up next on this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by a guy from Canada. He's a ski patroller, he's a hoist operator, and he's a paramedic. He comes to us with some phenomenal stories from the mountain and other aspects of his career and what he's been doing. As a matter of fact, we went two and a half hours here and we didn't even get into his hoist rescue stuff out of the helicopter. So that just means we're going to have to have him back. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. Brian Fishbook. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. let's go awesome ladies and gentlemen welcome to the real rescue uh today our guest mr brian fishbuck and let's see brian you are living in whistler area british columbia canada eh canada eh.
1: that's right can i can i that's say right, right. Canada? Eh? it's
0: canadian eh
1: yeah <laughs>
0: all right that that's might a only good be funny to me. Yeah, it totally yeah totally but it's totally true because all of you guys do that don't you yeah i'll
1: apologize i'll apologize at some point during that podcast <laughs> I so that's it. what we do
0: oh that's hilarious brian uh so you are a ski patroller uh, working for black home helicopters or black home in general is
1: that whistler black home whistler black home okay. is the ski area here and okay um And then I, and then the local helicopter company is called Black Home Helicopters and I work for them, but they're not, they do work together, but they're not connected uh, like professionally or business Got it.
0: Got it. Okay. You're also a hoist operator for Black Home Helicopters, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then part-time paramedic. That's right. Jeez. You're just a glutton for punishment is what you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, those that,
1: those that know, those that know me from the ambulance service will be like barely, but anyway, <laughs> um, I, I do still work. I do still work there. Yeah.
0: Cool. Very cool. Uh, all right. So a little background about you and I though, is you and I met about two and a half years ago at Heli Expo down in Dallas of all places. And yep. uh, you had gone down there with Black Home or, or actually, no, I shouldn't say that you went down there on your own at that point, right?
1: Yeah. that's right so you know sort of loosely affiliated with blackcomb but on my own and i've been going since 2015 to le expo yeah yeah so yeah so shoot you and i probably crossed paths at least
0: once or twice while we were there that's so funny
1: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: nice but we officially met there a lot of it through rob monday shout out to rob monday hello rob um (laughs) hello rob (laughs) and uh while we were there we ended up totally hitting it off and just having a a blast together um we started talking about some rescues and and the whole podcast came up and then this year we're back together again having a blast i was like brian when are you coming to join me and you're like fine
1: oh come on (laughs) no not not fine i mean there's a bit of trepidation i i uh i'm certainly not a coast guard rescue swimmer and i see all these people from around the world doing you know these incredible full-time capacity wild rescues and i'm just not sure if it really fits in but um at the same time there's there's things to share and so yeah i'm i'm psyched that uh you find it worthy and we'll go from there but mostly yeah it's been a great connection community wise as as you have and you've started developing that with the podcast and so i've been listening to lots and people that i know Thanks. and other people that i've wondered about uh etc so yeah great sort of central connection to uh specifically hoist rescue world i guess yeah Thanks, so it's, man. A, I'm, it's a it's a privilege it's a privilege to be here
0: dude i i'm so excited you're here and a lot of it is like all right so we have a group between us that for sr3 rescue concepts like there's a social sr3 social and in that right. group you send all these videos about you going up, blowing up like sides of mountains and stuff, and I'm exaggerating with some of it, but not really. <laughs> and then I'll never well, yeah, do the hoist and rappelling and all the stuff that you send. I'm like, oh my god, dude!
1: Yeah, it's fun. I guess probably thanks to Rob Monday there to be like, hey, you got to do Jason Quinn's podcast. And like, I don't know, man. And then he's like, no, you you do. So his his enthusiasm is part of part of the motivation, I guess and then yeah what you're talking about is avalanche control from the ski patrol perspective there so we use explosives to manage the avalanche hazard within the ski area and a lot of that's just super fun lots of it's hard work but lots of it's super fun so
0: all right we're, we're gonna have to like touch on a little bit we'll touch more. on that later gonna, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 yeah, for sure for sure so hey rob thanks for having brian come on way to way to coax him into it i appreciate it so
1: <laughs> yeah um
0: all right brian's well if you don't mind man give us a little background like how, where are you from? How did you grow up and how the heck did you get into ski patrol and search and rescue?
1: Yeah. So where did it all start? I grew up in Vancouver. So two hours south of Whistler. So Whistler is the sort of big international ski resort North of British Columbia, Canada, or sorry, North of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So West coast of Canada. Um, and it's really arguably the, the largest ski resort in North America. And, um, but I was just a, I was a kid growing up in Vancouver, and uh, because I topped out at five uh, eight and one hundred and fifty five pounds, it was very clear I wasn't going to the NHL at a young Aww, age. Man. And so, <laughs> so my brother and I were playing hockey, and then we sort of both stopped that uh, early teens, I guess. And we had gone skiing a few times. There is some local mountains like right close by Vancouver, and um, sort of annually we would skip school and my dad would take us up there in his jeans and, and put us on the rope toe. And we sort of knew that we liked skiing. We, I mean, and who doesn't, but something got in our blood there early. And then as hockey ended, we were just like, my brother and I, two years, my brother's two years older than me. we just like, we're skiers now. And, nice. and we just sort of hook line and sinker into that. And we, and it just really captured both of us. So skiing was sort of this main draw to experience the mountains um my parents not skiers my dad from the prairies uh in central canada you know a farm kid but they they just facilitated our our sort of love and joy of that so that sort of got us interested down the mountain path then i went to university at the university of british columbia that's in vancouver as well and um you know skiing as much as i could and and making um making my schedule revolve around if I could have a day off during the week so I could go skiing. So that was sort of the main sport that I loved, love to do. And of course, growing up in the West coast, British Columbia, there's lots of access to m- mountains and ocean and, and outdoor activities. So that was sort of a draw from the beginning. Um, then my awesome. brother, my brother took his first aid course because he was working at a sawmill and then I don't even know how he stumbled into uh, the volunteer ski patrol program that exists at at Blackcomb. And that back then Blackcomb mountain and Whistler mountain were two competitive ski areas across the Valley from each other. So two separate things. So he started with Blackcomb later it merged together as a big company as it is now, but he, he went up there and found this sort of volunteer ski patrol program. And I remember him coming back uh, and being like, Hey, there's, like this group of sort of outdoor mountain professionals that are all skiers. That's really the main identity that we had. They're like these great skiers, but they're mountaineers and there's rescue guys and they're doing helicopter stuff and avalanche control. And so he got sort of really captivated by that.
0: And
1: and because it was all sort of ski central or ski centric, that it was a draw to me as well. And then in my last my second to last year of university, I had lined up some field work because I did a degree in geomorphology. So sort of like geology earth surface processes, that type of stuff. So I had this field work with this master's student that I was going to go uh, do like landslide measurements or something like that. And at the last minute in August, I had all this work lined up. He, he was like, yeah, you know what? It's, we're not doing that. So thanks for coming out, but no job. And I was like, "Ooh!" all of a sudden I didn't have any work. I jumped on the first aid course. I don't know why I I did that, but I was like, Oh, well, I don't have any work. So maybe I'll take this first aid course. So I got that under my belt, which was the baseline first aid. I needed to volunteer ski patrol. And then I joined my brother volunteer ski patrolling and, and just got a taste, got a taste for the same thing. You're like, okay, so here's this mountain that I love skiing at and, and really interested in. And now here's these, these sort of mountain, medicine professionals on the ski hill and it's sort of the both things meshed together and if we rewind farther back than that my uncle my mom's uh, um, brother-in-law was a fireman in Vancouver and then you know so we looked up to him and when we loved his stories and then we had a family friend who was in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and so we had sort of a couple good sort of mentors but most kids like fire police rescue anyways but I think that was that was a that was a part of it you know that sort of built some draw there and then that interest coupled with skiing it it just you know spark ignition flame and we were away so in my last year university I volunteered as a ski patroller and and loved it and had some great experiences there and was working with my brother and then the next year I was lucky enough um to get hired full-time there i sort of promised myself that because i actually i got asked if i wanted to quit university and come full-time ski patrolling in that last year and i was like oh that's that's probably not a super smart move because i probably will never (laughs) finish university so in a in a mo in a fine moment of uh logical thinking which is not my strong point i (laughs) i stayed in university graduated and then uh promised myself that i would ski at least one year full-time you know be a ski bum and see what it was like to ski uh a a hundred days instead of 30 you know and And um
0: how did that work
1: out well and so then i got so then i got (laughs) so then i got hired and um and that was and then so 1990 in the 1900s um, I was hired in that. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I know,
0: right? <laughs> 1995
1: was my was my first full time. 95, the winter 95-96, my first time, uh, my first full time winter. So I moved up to Worcester where my brother was living. Moved into like sort of a loose family friends uh, basement. when brother and I shared a room across the way where where the guy that I lived with his two young uh young sons in bunk beds so we were just like derelicts our hockey gear drying in our room ski gear drying in our room and and we just skied and ski patrolled like all day long so yeah that started and then that that first year really sort of captured me I was like well I definitely need to do another year of that and then tick 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 26 years later I'm still a ski patroller oh my gosh 26 (laughs) years later 26 so, you know, you always kind of, you're just like, oh, I wonder how this is going to play out. Like, I wonder what I'm actually going to be when I grow up. And then, <laughs> yeah, tw- you're like, I wonder what my career is actually going to end up being. And yeah. well, it turns out it's, it's a ski patroller.
0: Yeah. 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 I sometimes yeah. wonder the Which same opened, thing. And it's yeah. hanging out of helicopters. I don't
1: know. Totally. Which then <laughs> opened all these different doors that's ended up me up here.
0: Man, that is so cool. Dude, out of curiosity, yeah, you need, in and- all of that, really quick, did, did you ever strap on a snowboard?
1: I have actually never, I've never snowboarded. I've like Ever? tried it for like 20, 20 feet. And I, I never, I never tried it. I, um, I was always really just so engaged by skiing. I just love skiing so much. And then that whole revolution happened and I was quite into snowboarding because my cousin two years older than me is like the, the original arguably queen bee of all things, snowboarding, Victoria Jalouse for those that, um, uh, that are snowboard fans. She, she's sort of, yeah, this, like her entire career, uh, yeah. she paved the way for female snowboarding really. And um, so I followed snowboarding a lot because of her and in the revolution that was happening there, but I personally haven't done it. Oh, wow. And, um, now, yeah. now all my friends that were diehard snowboarders are, are skiers anyways. Coming back. Ski, yeah. Well, ski touring is such a huge thing. It's just, yeah. it's a little more practical than uh split snowboarding. So yeah. um but both both things are are great ways to experience the mountains
0: dude i love it i, I love snowboard now but i do both like i'll jump on skis anytime
1: yeah. Just, and, yeah yeah i think one person yeah. said uh snowboarding is for having fun in the mountains skiing yes. is for working in the mountains and yeah. they they are just a little more versatile and we we need to be on skis to ski patrol um yeah for a, a few different reasons, but yeah, so skiing's always been the, the main love. And then I'll rewind a little bit to um, a shout out to my parents who weren't, like I said, weren't skiers, but saw the love of skiing that my brother and I had. And they would, my dad like worked at a sawmill his entire life. He'd be up early and on Saturday mornings, he'd get up early again, drive us up this sort of two plus hour single lane mountain highway to Whistler in terrible conditions, drop us off at the ski hill, let us go nuts. They'd go for breakfast in like the the one or two places to have breakfast in Bill- in the Whistler Village back then. Now it's a massive resort, but back then it was quite small. And they'd go for a walk in the golf course, have a nap in the car, and basically wait for us to be done. And oh then we will get in the car, snacks, food, nap, and they'd drive us home. And every once in a while, we were so amped on how awesome it was. That we'd like turn around and go straight back up on Sunday and do it again like double day and then my dad would be back to work and yeah so like the the dedication
0: mom dude
1: yeah that mom is and dad awesome. both the 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 dedication to just let their kids explore the things that they love like that that'll I'll get emotional if I keep talking about it but um like I, I just look at that the one, the privilege that that is, and two, their uh, their dedication to just let us thrive in the things that we were drawn to.
0: Oh, that um, is yeah, awesome. yeah, you know, it's
1: um unbelievable. Yeah,
0: good mom yeah. So and dad. thanks, mom and Woo-hoo!
1: dad. Thanks, thanks, mom and dad. Yeah,
0: I love that. Well, man, I, since you've been doing this, I, like you said, twenty six years. Good lord. So yeah. we have a whole bunch we're going to talk about, and and really, I'm just, I'm going to let it ride. Just have some fun. But
1: we gotta start right. with
0: number one, dude. What was your right. first rescue, man? Because everybody has so,
1: it, right? So I guess maybe unlike some of the rescue specialists that you interview, they're sort of they're they're in a like a, a small group, you know, like sort of two man rescue team, or maybe even a single person, like you guys rescue swimming, going out ski patrolling. You are the first responder, but then you've got this team that backs you up, you know. And it often, a lot of the rescues take quite a bit of manpower, anyways. So um, My rescues are both independent, but also followed up with lots of help. So my very first call as a ski patroller, you know, I'd done my first aid course, but I'd never seen a live patient, you know, or sort of a real patient before, uh, was simply a person with a broken wrist that rock walked into one of our, our ski patrol sort of huts where we, where we staged and and readiness. And I walked in and, um, uh, a woman that it sort of was kind of shadow or I was, I was her shadow Fiona. Fiona Durkholl, if she ever listens to this, she's a superstar and she knows it. Um, nah, walk walk, it. walk in and uh, and here's this person with a broken wrist and she's like, hey, this is, this is your patient, go ahead, you know, and sort of fumble through a primary survey and secondary and to figure out if you're going to splint and, and ask your questions awkwardly and, and do all that. So that's really, I guess, my like first call. Um you didn't even but have then, to go anywhere
0: they came to you no That's I didn't so nice yeah, of
1: them. <laughs> yeah, t- t- totally and then it may be that same day or at least that same week like that would have been my first week uh patrolling uh as a, that would have been in my volunteer year so I did that volunteer year I wasn't even full-time there yet and then um a uh a spinal injury was my sort of first I guess like more complicated one you know just someone with like neck pain from it hit some big jump and landed on their like neck and back. And you're like, okay, so packaging on the spine board and toboggan. So luckily the the progression was like a, a little bit slow and you have all this support you start developing your, your sort of process around how you see patients. And again, um, kudos to this, to the ski patrol. I had all these incredibly experienced people to model your, um, your sort of rescue style after your first aid style. And some like really, really high level paramedics that work for us on the ski hill and doctors and other longtime ski patrollers. And so you're picking these ways of talking to patients and approaching calls um, from other people's examples. So it's uh, so a really great deal of learning that happened there. And then if, I guess if I go to like my, my first um, big, Big injury. Let me actually look at uh some notes. Oh yeah. So in the upper Alpine it was a cold day, probably minus fifteen. And um I wasn't the first one on, but we got
0: Celsius or fifteen. So yes, my yes, minus fifteen. Uh-huh. Yeah, minus
1: fifteen Celsius. So will you do you okay, have a just converter checking. that shows up on the screen? <laughs> do you have a Celsius converter that <laughs> shows up on the screen I, Fahrenheit? I
0: should I, you know what I'll add it just because you mentioned it. So nice, it be right nice. right So it's there. cold
1: yeah yeah perfect so yeah it's it's cold it's cold crisp sunny day and we get what's for us we call it a code three call so it's a more significant accident it's a you know sort of an immediate response and um the first person goes down there it's this unconscious uh female maybe early 20s she's been snowboarding on a relatively flat road uh but it's it's hard packed day it hasn't snowed in a while and she's snowboarding. And as you know, as a snowboarder sort of going straight and flat can be a bit tricky. And so she hooked that heel edge that lots, lots of people will understand if they're snowboarders. Yep. And so then heel edge, which flips her backwards and then immediately smacks, smacks her head and she's unconscious seizing vomiting on the, on the ski hill. So, you know, the call comes in and it's quite obviously quite serious. And so then there's a, a, a significant response of ski patrollers and again this is what i'm talking about we're, we're lucky to sort of have this ability to layer doctor uh, acp advanced care paramedic and 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 ski patrollers uh, onto that call so you could easily oh, have like
0: you've got a straight up doctor coming out it's on the mountain
1: yeah yeah so we can talk about that in detail as well yeah so we've had for oh, many years
2: snap, and,
1: and the, dude. The, the, the blackcomb ski patrol for sure has has been a pioneer in developing sort of this doctor slash uh advanced care paramedic program unfortunately the care paramedic the advanced care paramedic program has sort of fallen off um a little bit with some logistics around how the companies run and stuff but we still have a, a longstanding doctor program yeah so we can have quite advanced care on the ski hill thank goodness that's crazy Um, all right so i didn't mean to cut you off so no that's okay so you know so the whole you know so the cavalry shows up to this call and i I showed up after the fact to bring maybe some additional o2 or something and i was on a snowmobile and he got there and i was like okay so this is the first surreal, serious call and it's it's challenging it's cold she's uh unconscious and seizing and clenched up so no uh opa uh head injury so probably elected to no npa back then Um, the vomit's like freezing on her mouth. So, you know, she's sort of critical. You're sort of trying to bag her, um, in those cold temps, nothing really works. I remember specifically helping maybe hold the IV bag, watch the paramedics start the IV, but then as soon as you run the fluid through the IV tubing and that temperature, right, just immediately froze, even though it's like normal saline. So now you got a frozen IV line, you're trying to heat that up with a hot pack. So you know, just the the complexity of those types of calls in that environment is um, is difficult, and at the same time, uh, super engaging. I guess to keep me doing it for twenty six years, because you're just, you know, it's this sort of this teamwork, these challenges that you learn to work around or at least anticipate. You know, maybe now you would you would already anticipate that and try and pack that tubing and some something heated or protect it. Wow. you know even and so then they're trying to give just um like a iv hub that they had just in the uh, i think they're in their left woman's uh arm like ac fossa at their elbow the vein there and then just trying to push drugs through it like a needle into just a um an iv port or hub but of course in that temperature even the the con- the cooling effect of the metal needle you know, he just immediately freezes in the needle as you try and push it through. So just challenging efforts to do a recess on this woman that's crit- that's critically injured. Wow. Um, they did, if I remember correctly, they they did finally uh, manage to get an IV started and then paralyze her and get her intubated and um and then her off the ski hill so a helicopter land relatively close by. And uh, get you know sort of get our packaged up and stabilized the best you could. You know, at that point, really the ABCs are the are the key factors in those type of calls in in that yeah. environment. And um, and off we went. So yeah, that had been sort of my first real significant call. It wasn't particularly mine, but I was involved in, and and really set the stage to just be like, oh man, this this job's got lots going on. And those those type of calls, the frequency isn't super high. But um, we've certainly seen plenty of that type of st- thing over the years. And yeah, wow. the, team, the teamwork, I guess, is the real, the real draw there. And there's some incredible mentors that have come along the way in those calls that I, I admired so much um, in my early years. And I was like, I want to be able to handle patients like, like that, you know, like yeah. those people. Um, oh, man. and then getting to, getting to work with directly with advanced care paramedics back then and, and the doctors, which are mostly emerge docs, you know, you all, you also end up, you know, as a, just a BLS person, like on the ambulance, you're sort of doing your best with your patient, but there isn't sort of this collaborative nature, like there is ski patrolling, you are sort of layering in a doctor and layering in this, this longtime Aravac ambulance you know, paramedic that also works on the hill um, to see their style and the way they approach patients and stuff. So the the learning curve there on the ski patrol has been something that I'm greatly valued. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I, I ideally, you sort of take the things that you like from individuals and and try and be a, your best version of of their versions. And so, ideally, I guess the people that go ahead or or move on and are are. Um, a boiled down and consolidated version of the awesome people that went before us
0: Dang.
1: at least at least ideally that's the way it would work yeah
0: yeah oh yeah yeah for sure man that is so cool um I, i'm sorry for the girl who got hurt but to have a full team show up that's freaking great man
1: i love yeah, that yeah we you know yeah the the Black Home Ski Patrol and, and collectively the Whistler Black Home Ski Patrol now, that it is a remarkable um, group there. and Not all uh, ski patrols around North America have that level of advanced care directly available on the ski hill. And um, a number of the docs and or people that, you know, doctors from around the world that have witnessed calls, they're like, there's often a comment that you're like, that, that level of care is is really no different minus the environment that you might get if you crashed your car outside the, the primary, um, emergency hospital, you know, in Vancouver for us, the, the main trauma hospital is called Vancouver general hospital. So BGH, you know, and a lot of these docs are, are ICU and emerge docs in those, in those, um, those primary trauma centers. And, and so you're getting, yeah, remarkable level of care, uh, in situ on the ski
0: hill
2: and i'm proud
1: to be i'm proud to be a part of that and sort of try and perpetuate that and and keep that going and um yeah it's a real honor to work with such incredibly experienced people and then translate the mountain side of it which isn't the doctor's specialty so there's this cool symbiotic relationship with specifically if we're talking about the doctors and the ski patrollers they look up to the ski patrollers because the ski abilities there and sort of the rescue background with ropes or helicopters or whatever needs to happen, or even just complexity of moving in difficult terrain, they, they really sort of uh, rely on the patrol to handle the logistics of a complex call. And then we really rely on the dock to provide that advanced, that advanced care. And so that, that relationship's really two ways and it, and it makes for kind of a special connection there. And, and so both, I think value each other and that's awesome.
0: Ryan, that's sick. Dude, Yeah, that's it. yeah, good.
1: That's good. Out of
0: curiosity, in your 26 years, is there a common like all right? Let me rephrase that question a little bit because you know, going through medic school and EMT school and all those, you know, they talk about ski injuries and the break in the legs when you get your ski going one direction, your leg goes mm-hmm. the other, and your broken wrist because you end up falling backwards and you crank your wrist and whatnot. Um, is there a common theme or common injury that you see on the mountain yeah if we
1: if we had to boil it down i would say sk- skiers hurt their knees as okay. would be the primary thing and snowboarders break their wrists and dislocate their shoulders and then maybe equally skiers and snowboarders dislocate their shoulders so broken wrists injured knees you know most most often the ligamentous injury you know the acl is is the main thing there and then um and then the dislocated shoulders, that, that, that is a really sort of common theme. And then everything in between there, the ski, yeah. the skier's thumb, the laceration, um, maybe the next level up is the boot top fracture in the skier. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, the you know, what so I was the thinking tib, about. The tip, yeah, yep. the tip, the tip, the okay. fracture. Yeah. Yeah. Quite common. And mm-hmm. then we'll, we'll see the femur fracture, lots of concussions. Occasional
0: um, tree injury.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then this sort of t- con- contact with whatever, yeah, that, that may that may be, and the yeah, thi- the yeah, thing didn't
0: move when they ran into it.
1: Like, yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. Turned.
0: I don't know why yeah. it didn't just turn. Yeah,
1: exactly. And you know what? Surprisingly, like that first that first rescue, there really critical and nasty injuries can also happen in wide open green runs, easy runs. You know, there's sort of a mix: the speed yeah. and the generation of power that comes from from skiing, you can have the equally horrible. And I would say actually our frequency of, of like high acuity accidents doesn't really correspond with the technicality of the terrain. You know, we've got a lot of what would be called extreme terrain. You can get off the lift and ski hundred meters to, uh, yeah, close to a thousand foot couar of starting at probably 50 degrees and, and maintaining in the high forties or mid forties. Like you, Holy you can access stroke. this terrain like Im- immediately off the r- off the ski hill, or sorry, off wow. the chairlift. Um, yet we don't see the critical accidents happening in the critical terrain. We actually see it in the in probably sort of the mid the mid range terrain. So that's an interesting um, right uh, kind of set of facts there.
0: So another thing, I uh, kind of follow up question with that is. So you guys show up on scene to anybody that's injured, you know, and, and I expect, let's say, uh, like you said, boot fracture or the the boot ski, right? But, boot uh, fracture, yeah,
1: but, uh, but a boot top fracture, yeah, boot like top, tib, just right. mid mid tib fib fracture Gosh. would be the same thing.
0: Rookie mistake, right there. That's mine. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a little while. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You,
1: you'll get the lingo. You'll get yeah. the lingo.
0: But um, so those those types of injuries, when they're happening, let's say mid or upper part of the mountain, you know, you're showing up on scene as kind of a rescue team, you still have to get them down the mountain. Now, like I know you got snowmobiles, I know you got stuff, but what's the what's what is the normal let me get you off the mountain from point A to point yeah.
1: B? Yeah, good point. So I mean, one of the one of the flagship parts of Whistler Black Home is a vertical mile of Of like vertical ski terrain there so you get on the chairlifts in the village and you you ride a a vertical mile up this up the ski hill to where most of the skiing happens so you're a long way from sort of the parking lot the road the the access to the clinic that type of thing Mm -hmm. um so yeah everyone gets transported primarily on a toboggan so a skiable stretcher if you will um and so anything that that isn't simple and maybe close to a chairlift because the option is to put someone on a chairlift and ride it down, you know, oh, t- typically yeah. everyone rides oh up and so also ride, ride down. And then we've got um, primary gondolas now that, uh, that access sort of the main portion of the ski hill. So we do have the ability to ride the gondola down as well with patients, but often that switch over is, is just as much logistics as just once you're packaged in a toboggan. And rolling down the ski hill, you might as well just keep it that way. So got for it. the most Makes part, sense. people that are non-ambulatory go in a toboggan and get skied to the valley by by uh, a one ski patrol they're just skiing around up up in front of the toboggan. You can kind of control it. They've got these rigid handles that extend out the out of the front of the stretcher. It's a smooth bottom with these rails that help um, guide it and and make it ski with a little bit of control. And then as the complexity goes up, we you can sort of add a, uh, some basic rope management to that to get across a side hill or move through more difficult terrain a person will be behind the toboggan as well kind of helping with um managing the momentum and, and moving through terrain but for the most part get yourself onto a groom ski run and then uh you'll take your patient all the way to the valley meet either a company truck if they're sort of semi ambulatory there um they'll get in a truck and get taken to the local clinic which is not affiliated with with the ski hill it's the community clinic but it has a uh, I think almost a 10 bed sort of ER there, a couple oh, trauma nice. bays, um, and, and a helipad that can then meet the, the air ambulance from the city if, if there's critical transport from there. And, uh, and then otherwise the ambulance will pick us up at the closest point where it's snow meets road, except, uh, basically, and, and do a transfer there to the ambulance service, which is the provincial ambulance service. So not associated with the ski hill and, and they'll take the patient from there to, to the clinic. So everything comes off the ski hill via the ski patrol and then transfers into sort of the, the British Columbia healthcare system. And they, and they go from there the same way if you got hurt on the side of the road or in, in your house. Cool. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Yeah. All right, yeah. So now yeah, it's
1: lots of movement. Ready?
0: Next follow-up question out of rescue stuff that, that you guys have had to do, whether it's avalanches or, um, I can't even think of really anything other than an avalanche on the side of a, but I'm sure, you know, uh, what do you see? what do you, what do you guys get called out? Yes.
1: So we get, so we get the full range, you know, the ski patrollers duties are kind of threefold. We are responsible for all just like the marking and management of the ski runs. So all the signage, all the fences that make people designate areas and mark off hazards and all that. So we're responsible to make sure the ski hills in good shape, um, so that people are, are well managed in the hazards that exist and don't, you know, sort of ski off of cut bank on a road or off a cliff that's not marked. So that's our responsibility. We do all that. And then we do all of the first aid from handing out band-aids all the way up to complex rescue. And then we do all the avalanche control on the ski hill when there's hazard. So from the rescue side of things, you know, the the frequency decreases as the acuity goes up, but um, there's, you know, full capacity of double rope rescue teams there. So we're, we're you know, sort of using stand... The, I think we're hitting the standard on, um, mountain rope rescue, you know, twin tension systems now for double rope yeah. if we're in the vertical environment and then a fair amount of kind of hybrid work where just someone may need to be put on belay and, um, and walked out of a steep area that maybe has a fall hazard below it or something like that, wow. or just, a, uh, you know, a belayed walk down to make contact with someone to put a harness on them to help them either walk further down past the hazard or how they're stuck or up all all the way up to yeah you know the full vertical um litter rope, rope rescue Jeez, uh, and those okay. don't happen those don't happen super often but uh, we we call the sort of mid-range thing a, a quick pick you know someone gets in over their head in terrain and is stuck whether they're stuck based on their own ability um and they they just can't go on and they need some assistance or they're properly stuck over top of some cliff hazard or frozen terrain that just doesn't let them move farther and actually truly need sort of rope rope access rescue then that quick pick would be single line uh on a belay device typically a Petzl id move down to that patient get a a harness like a yates rescue harness on them connect them to the same rope and then you're sort of this belayed assisted movement either up or down to to get them to a safe spot
0: and yeah yeah, all that's really
1: fun yeah, all that's really fun, right? Because it's that it's that teamwork, the the rope stuff I really enjoy. And um, but those those aren't super common. And then there's just lots of difficult spots, whether it's in the trees, steep terrain, where sort of the ski patrol's own skiing ability is the key element to to making that rescue. So someone is on a I don't know, a steep mogul run with lots of trees and it's the ski ability that gets the toboggan delivered by by the ski patroller into that position. And then you'll dig a snow platform to to put them into whatever configuration they need, you know, back mat or spine board or whatever that is, load them into the toboggan and then, you know, sort of multi-person movements with some assistance of the toboggan to get it out of that difficult steep terrain or do some weird traverse across difficult terrain to get out to an easy ski hill where you can then handle that, that, um, that call like as a single person and ski them to the valley, so yeah, lots of lots of teamwork, lots and lots of teamwork, which is amazing, and lots of layered response. So, first person goes to the call, figures out what it is, and then starts adding equipment from there, um, and it's really fun when those go smoothly. You feel like you've got quite a um, a capable team. Yeah, and then if we go yeah. and then if we go even farther to that Black Blackcomb Ski Patrol. Um, Again, kudos to them and some of the, uh, the rescue, you know, sort of early day rescue specialists, even in the, in the province, let alone the country, um, had, uh, the first civilian class D fixed line or what you guys in the U S call short haul rescue programs outside of our federal government parks, Canada. So our federal parks have like a rescue specialty program made up of mountain guides, it's rescue specialists that work for, for Parks Canada, and they've been doing fixed line rescue in Canada. They really were the beginners of that in the early seventies. Um, and then I want to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, George Zalahi, if you listen to this from Mergeco, um, uh, early early eighties, the recognition that like, hey, you know, this fixed line capability. Um, can can maybe be brought to the civilian rescue world and again i'll give some some pioneer shout outs uh bruce brink a mentor of mine als paramedic slash sort of longtime mountain rescue specialist um they they like me were sort of these volunteer ski patrollers they were he worked for the ambulance service specifically in the coast guard and they're like man the ski patrol job has got this cool arena of mountain rescue happening let's be a part of that as well and they brought some of the advanced paramedic skill to the mountain they and they really sort of launched that uh that development of the the high level care within the ski patrol environment and and so one of which including was like hey you know we can have this fixed line uh helicopter rescue program um be part of our be part of our uh our internal rescue capability as well yeah. so so then so that's that's part of it you know helicopters have been used for medivacs off the ski hill and that's the most common way in an acutely injured patient uh it's such a long toboggan ride whether it's patient aggravation or time the election will often is to use use the helicopter and then we'll land that on scene as close as we can or close as practical load them in the aircraft fly them to the local clinic that i was talking about go inside there stabilize and most of the time they can handle it from there whether it's a ground transport for surgery or or whatever else is happening or interface with the BC air ambulance that'll come and meet, meet, uh, that patient on the pad and fly them to the primary, uh, trauma center in Vancouver. So any of our helicopter work is, is just rescue based small a star, typically sometimes four Oh seven, uh, off okay. the ski Hill, two minute flight down to a helipad at the clinic handoff, stabilize there, and then carry on.
2: Damn. And then
1: if, yeah, if we're in a location that's really difficult to access the patient, it's going to take a long, long time, or there's um, uh, a, a big manpower draw or something like that, then the option is to use the fixed line uh, with the helicopter rescue program. And that's that's an internal program. So we actually own, Worcester Blackcomb owns the rescue kit for those that sort of know how all that works. We own the rescue kit often in lots of places, the helicopter company that owns it. Um, but we own the rescue kit and then we interface with the local helicopter carrier, which is Blackcomb Helicopters. And the regulations in Canada say if you're going to do Class D rescue, so humans hanging out underneath the helicopter, um, you need to have what's called an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, which is an agreement between the user and the, and the helicopter operator that says we'll do rescue in this fashion. Well, this will be our scope of practice. This is the equipment we'll use. This is how we'll train. So we've got an MOU with Blackham Helicopters. They provide uh, Class D rescue if we need it on the ski hill. So we'll the ski patrollers will be the rescuers, and the helicopter and helicopter pilot will be the um, will be the provision of that. That's so freaking amazing, dude! And so, so maybe on that a little fast forward to a rescue that's now maybe several several years ago. We and over the years blackcomb helicopters was just a small local helicopter company now it's quite large back then it was a small local helicopter company and so they had their primary pilots we'd do medivacs we'd use the helicopter to do helicopter avalanche control they'd fly snow guns around you know they were sort of the, the, the main helicopter that got used for any helicopter work that we needed to do slinging otherwise and all the pilots there pretty much were skiers and and you know sort of locally lived in Whistler. And so there was this great relationship between them and and the ski patrol. And it was almost like the Blackcomb ski patrol's air wing, if you will. They would ski on the hill. Everyone hung out, everyone hung out together. You know, there was just this incredible family camaraderie there. And um, Steve Flynn, he was sort of the owner, he was the owner of the helicopter company there. And he was a real advocate of that, those relationships as well. So some really great people there that sort of paved that culture. But um, so, if we're talking about one specific rescue, um, it, we had, uh, a number of like volunteer or were full-time ski patrollers that had become pilots and a couple Ooh, of nice. them work, work for Blackcomb helicopters locally. So then suddenly we've now got this, these pilots that have been ski patrollers in their own right. So they really know the operation super well, and they're often now becoming our rescue pilot. So there's a great interface there of sort of knowledge and you can talk the same language and they know the ski hill intimately. So there's a really cool crossover that happens there that I think is good for the patients and for us. And, um, yeah, and there's one particular rescue, which is pretty unique if, if we want to go into that. That's right. Come on baby. at this point. Like I'm here dude. Right uh so this is quite a crazy call i want to say it's maybe oh gosh it's probably five years ago now covid you always instantly lose two years without even thinking yeah, about right. it might even be longer <laughs> totally so um call comes in someone's been caught in an avalanche in the upper alpine seventh heaven area of, of the black black mountain and the description of where it is we can actually see that area from our ski patrol hut so we put the binoculars on it we look outside it's a it's a it's conditions that doesn't really have that don't really have much avalanche hazard hasn't snowed in a while. There isn't really an avalanche hazard that exists. So first of all, we're like avalanche hard to picture an avalanche happening in that region. So we're scanning it with the scanning it with the binoculars. Don't really see it trying to make sure we're, you know, the, the call that came in, is isn't sort of somewhere else. And so we're sort of surmising on like, could it be here? Could it be there? Let's go look and check anyways, initial ski patrollers head out and, um, they find this woman in sort of this big open bowl that you can traverse through the rocks and then move out into this big open bowl. But otherwise it's, it's kind of just 30 degree slope, open bowl with a traverse mark. And here's this critically injured woman. She's unconscious. She obviously has a traumatic head injury, um, lacerations. So she's, she's critical unconscious. Um, um well, I think with like, you know, with agonal respirations, and so it's a really critical call we're like but where did she come from like how did she get here in this open slope like how, wh- how why is she so injured so badly in this open terrain and as as they sort of put it together there is a small avalanche what we so avalanches can be uh uh various sizes and and the smallest the smallest one basically doesn't have enough snow to even bury someone but it would have enough snow to sort of sweep someone off their feet or something we call that a size one avalanche and um, so there is this size one avalanche debris from above this bowl is this really steep rocky gullied terrain but it's not obvious that there's an avalanche that's sort of come out of there but there is there is some snow that had moved and you're like okay so did she get caught in this avalanche it's not big enough to do that type of damage to her how did she get here some people noticed that she's uh sort of looks like maybe she slid down the slope from up above where the rocks are so people start to surmise did she fall from above somehow and like many rescues that you've that you've experienced right the the info trickles in and often initially it's unclear as to what happened and then more information comes and you start putting it together and so sure enough the 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 friends she was with, <clears throat> excuse me, were able to sort of move out of the hazardous terrain in the rocks that they found themselves in and, and make their way down to the, the accident to find their friend critically injured. And then the story starts to come in. We were trying to move through this upper closed area with these really steep rock gullies. Um, and and she, and she fell through this rock gully and you're like, Oh, okay. Okay. So she's, so that makes sense on why she's hurt so badly. Yeah. But then second to that, they start mentioning that like their other, they don't know where their other friend is. Oh, so, so now we're like, so a huge amount of resources are allotted to trying to recess this woman in a, in a tricky spot. She's not a steep side of a slope. It's hard to get equipment there. So there's a whole bunch of medical specialty stuff happening there. Of course, it's going to be a medevac. So the aircraft lands farther down in the flats. Um, uh, Smart decision from the Medivac, the the landing spot manager, uh, Gavin Reed, a longtime sort of helicopter specialist as well that I work with in a few different capacities. He's like, hey, well, while they're trying to recess this woman, I'll jump in the Medivac helicopter and I'll go try and figure out what's going on with the rest of this call. So he jumps in the aircraft and flies up above. And so sure enough, here's this subject um that's stuck midway in this rock gully on this tiny little ledge and he's the second half of that party oh, um man. and the background story of that is that there's three or four they move into this closed area it was well signed but they move into this closed area it sort of looks a little inviting from up top uh and they move down into this gully so two, I think if I'm correct, two of them are like, we don't like the way this looks. We're, we're hiking out and going around we and we're not going down here. Turns out this guy and his girlfriend continue to move down the gully to see if they can get through this terrain. They then get a little bit spooked. And if I'm, I'm correct with the story, they they trigger a small, little wind slab avalanche. So it's relatively small. It's sort of cross-loaded uh, wind, uh, sort of loads snow into into a uh, an area. And, and as they move onto it with um, their snowboards, the snow releases and slides through this gully. So pre- presumably that spooks them a little bit, and they're like, "Oh, we you know we don't want to get caught in an avalanche." So for whatever reason, they then chose to take their snowboards off and start trying to walk down this snow gully, which just got steeper and steeper and basically closed out. It, it wasn't, it wasn't passable by skis or a snowboard, uh, kind of this dogleg gully. I think the total distance she fell when we measured it 200 vertical meters.
2: Oh so my times that. God.
1: so t- yeah, so times that by three for <sighs> your total feet. So as the story wow. goes, the, the, the boyfriend is sort of trying to navigate down this gully, coach the girlfriend to, to come with him. They're walking down. The gully changes aspect just a little bit, and the snow gets harder than they were walking. Um, I guess without the details, I don't really know what happened. She ends up slipping. He tries to grab her. She slides past him and then has this fatal well eventually fatal fall through this this gully and she pours out onto this big snow slope below oh. and that's why they find her in sort of the middle of this relatively benign snow slope but critically injured cuz she's she's fallen 200 vertical meters through a rock gully. Wow. And and now boyfriend is stuck in in this gully in this tiny little um he's moved off to the side of the gully but he's on this tiny little ledge in amongst a bunch of rocks. So Ski patroller that's jumped in the helicopter, goes and identifies that there's this person uh, still stuck. So now we've got critically injured patient plus rescue. It at that point was obviously a fixed line rescue for the fastest way to, to take care of him. So we like, hey, this is going to be a fixed line transport. So we need a class D pilot, uh, a, a certified rescue pilot from from the helicopter company. This awesome guy that used to ski patrol for us, named Ad- Andrew Murdoch, is now one of the like sort of lead pilots. Um, for black home helicopters, but he's working a ski patrol day. He's, he's a part-time ski patroller as well. So he's in the dispatch office. He's like, Hey, uh, I'll take the load off the dispatchers. You're handling this call. I'll call the helicopter company. I'll figure out what pilot and aircraft is going to come and do the, the fixed line rescue for you. He calls the helicopter company. They're like, Ooh, you're actually the only, everyone's busy. You're actually the only certified dude. Oh, so he's like, no. well, he's like, Okay. okay. So then he puts his skis, he's, well, he's in his ski gear. He jumps in his skis. He skis the vertical mile to the valley uh, as fast as he can. He jump, takes his ski boots off, jumps in his truck, drives the 15 minutes out to the hangar, which is Buckham Helicopter's hangar, rolls an aircraft out of the, out of the hangar uh, and jumps in it in a ski patrol uniform and comes back to the staging area to, to, to meet us, to then go do the recce, to realize that we sort of got this, you know, fairly technical, um, fixed line rescue to see if we can get this guy. And, uh, so yeah, pretty, pretty awesome interface of like, not a lot of ski Hills out there, I think have like in-house rescue pilots, you know, he's like, wait a second, I'll just go, I'll just go grab a helicopter. we will be right. Be right back. You know, Do that that's, pretty, like, so, yeah, you so that's it. pretty, yeah, it's, it's, it's good, you know, and, and luck of course now he knows in inter- intimately like what what's going on with the call who's where so sort of the communications and and um follow through on the call is pretty smooth because he's already integrated into the call in the first place so we go have a look at it this guy looks quite precarious we don't know if the snow is sort of super stiff we identify this little tree that's just above him and we're like i I think we might have to put uh the rescuer onto the onto the tree and at least build an anchor there to then figure out what the movement's going to be like to pick this guy off of his precarious position um so it ended up being uh myself that went in as the as the rescue technician didn't really know what the snow was like so elected to wear crampons which can be sort of plus minus right like they're they work awesome when you need them but they're also tricky um and and easy to catch on stuff and um and stumble and and then ice axe and and just a little bit of rope gear to to potentially make this sort of small belay movement down to this guy and see if potentially we needed to be anchoring ourselves there to um to make contact with him so sure enough uh, I get flown up there from the staging area and as we're sort of level flight with with the with the scene just like you know from once you sort of get down on the hoist hook or something you can have a, a you get a better better perspective on what the terrain's like yeah. as opposed to looking at it vertically and so as as i approach sort of more from the level spot i realized that i should be able to um just get right beside him on this ledge. It looks a little more manageable than it did from above. So then just quick comms to say, Hey, put me just on the climbers left of this guy. I think I could be static there as we need, as we need to. So fly into this little precarious ledge, have to stomp out all this, uh, faceted snow, basically we call it rotten snow. When just like in your freezer, everything sort of builds up this brittle frost on everything. When yeah. snow sits in in the rocks, the same thing happens. So it's quite unstable. It's just basically, you know, like um, it's just it's just frost on the rocks. So I sort of have to stomp my way into a decent position before I can come off the line. Sort of bit of a one handed hold on the rocks. This guy is is gripped there. Of course, uh, he he is he is stable, but it's precarious. Uh, and he's just watched his girlfriend disappear down the scully. He doesn't know the level of her injuries because he's stuck and she disappeared around the corner. Wow. So that, that's pretty, that's pretty tragic, you know, and at this point she's been medevac. She, she dies at the clinic, I think, um, Damn, I'm sorry, or, yeah. or at least was, yeah. So yeah. Horrible accident. She, she had a ton of complicated injuries and, um, but it ends up being fatal for her tragically. Uh, so able to get the evac harness on, you know, so hot seat style evac harness on this gentleman, and connected and able to long line him out of his precarious position back to staging where then we flew him to the, to the Valley. And unfortunately to, to arrive to the terrible news that, um, his girlfriend oh. had, had died from the yeah. call. But, um, yeah, as we know ter- ter- terrible things happen and, and, and that's the game of rescue. Yeah. but it's this juxtaposition between the excitement of doing that type of work and the tragedy of why it gets done in the first place. And I don't really know how we reconcile that, but I think those of us in this, this community recognize that it can be both and, you know, it can be both tragic yep. and exciting at the same time and just yep. is what it is. So yeah, you you know, you look back to the capacity of the ski patrol and that call and it felt really good to manage a call with such complexity to have a pilot just be like, yeah, I'll go get a helicopter. I'll be right back. Come back. Well integrated into the team, knows knows the I'm game sure and rescue, knows the pilot, and uh, puts puts us in there. We're able to get that guy out without a lot of complication. It otherwise would have been, you know, probably a, a, for a rope not pass for sure on full length the sixty meter rope uh, to move through that gully and um, and get them out of there on on rope access as well. You know, we staged rope team, but um, but uh, but luckily didn't need to use it because the helicopter worked. So yeah, that's one of that's a memorable one for sure.
0: Uh, ah yeah. yeah,
1: and a good and a good use of the capacity, pr- proud use of the the sort of inter, uh, interagency capacity that we have at Western Black Hills Ski Patrol.
0: Wow, dude, that's, that's yeah. incredible. That is incredible. Yeah, that's good. Like, I, I am I am sorry yeah. she fell in and tragically lost. Uh, like my sympathy for her yeah, that, and family. The, the, the boyfriend, absolutely. I, you know. um, Uh, I love what we do though. So the fact that you guys put all those resources into, into play to try to get her out and alive and to go back and get him out, even though they went beyond the bounds of where they're supposed to go. huh? I mean,
1: yeah, those, that's Those, that's, those are subtle. Those are subtle elements. We it's, it's complicated terrain. We do our very best to, to designate those areas with lots of signage but it's also easy for people that are excited and poking around and adventuring to find themselves in the wrong spots. And so it's, it's a mix, you know, and, um, Dang. uh, but you're, yeah, you're right. No. And that, that call is not to pose any blame on, on those people. That's where they found themselves in. Those are the decisions they made. And, and then tragically, that's, that's what happened Yeah, in that circumstance. Oh. Yeah. Brian. Yeah. So the, so yeah, so the fixed line program for us has, has served us well in those, in those types of, um, in those types of environments, we, we need it for sure. Yeah. That's yeah. It, it's it available, works. available to yeah. us when, when, when we've got it and yeah, maybe nice. one day we'll have, maybe one day we'll have voice capacity on, on the ski hill, but that would be, you know, be quite a bit of program development there. And right, right now it's fixed line for us.
0: That's cool. I, you know, it works mm. like,
1: yeah, it, it
0: works. I get it. I like Yeah, and there's line. a, there's a huge, I, I like, yeah,
1: thank you. <laughs> for sure. And I, you know, I learned that that was a great lesson because there's, you know, those, those that have hoist capacity, often that's, that's the move. And they think that's the tool to be used. People that have fixed line think that's the tool. And maybe there often ends up being this sort of comparison between the two. And um, I, when I went over to, I took the Alpine Hems course at Air Zermatt, which was an incredible experience, seven day sort of Rescue specialist course there, which is amazing, and it was really cool how they 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 have both abilities, hoisting and fix line, as we know, and they just simply look at the call and decide which is the appropriate tool. And so that was a great, that was sort of a great uh, marker for me to just be like, oh right, it's not one or the other, it's it's what works best. And for us, the versatility of our fix line um, uh, kit if you will, is it can go on any aircraft. We don't need special fixtures on a particular aircraft to do it. So we need a certified pilot and we need an A Star or a 407, and then our kit can go on any one of those aircraft. So I think that still is the, the smart way to have that capacity because it keeps us the most versatile. There's a little bit more specialized equipment around that that's got some advantages, but for the most part, the versatility, I think, wins that sort of argument for us.
0: Dude, that is sick. You see the same mm-hmm. thing up in like the Himalayas too. They use the A star long line, sure, they yeah, way way up, and then they drop the guys off and say, "All right, yeah. keep climbing."
1: So- yeah, yeah, <laughs> but dude, sick. Um, yeah, that yeah, that was that was a, a, a cool use of all our all our capacities. We had rope rescue ready to go. We had fixed line ready to go. We had all our medical capability there. We had a uh, doctor to I think two ACP paramedics she did get intubated on, on site. You know, she, she had the best chance of surviving that uh, that accident with the care she got. Um, and unfortunately I, I just don't think it was viable. Yeah. Um. But no, no matter what, no matter what environment or amount of care she had available to her.
0: Yeah. Dang. Right.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: good job to you and all the crew. Crews. Yeah. Plural yeah we go
1: yeah amazing yeah and over the over the years you know that fixed line doesn't get used a lot but I've, I've been lucky enough to have several uh on my days that are yeah that are that are memorable for sure okay um yeah um let me check
0: oh look, i'm ready for another story <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know my 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 first yeah my my my, my on oh, my first fixed line call uh was kind of funny we had this uh late in the day uh, off the, one of our chairlifts sort of ends and then below it, there is, uh, just this sort of steep mountain gully. Um, that's yeah, maybe close to a thousand feet into the, into the valley, but then there's an hmm. exit road that, that takes, that takes you out back to the ski area, but, but the terrain below that sort of leaves the ski area and there's not really any way out of there besides, uh, difficult navigation through these cliff bands and stuff. So sure enough, um, this teenager decides to go below the boundary to find some powder and he gets lost and stuck. The call comes in for us that uh, this teenager is missing. So we have fairly decent data that we know where they went. And this is pre cell phone. It's quite a while ago. It's still in the 1900s, I think. And I think it's, ni- I, know, I think it's, ni- I think it was 99. I want to say it's 99. So myself uh, and this other uh, experienced ski patroller, we go up and we think, you know, it's going to be fairly simple. The, some people located the, the ski tracks off the edge of the road, and there isn't a lot of them there. So you sort of get index a suspicion that that's the right spot. So like, you know what, we'll probably ski down here, find, find this guy, hike him back up to the road, and, and, and we'll, be, we'll be done. So we go back up. It's dark. It's in December or something like that. So it's, it's dark right away. We're on the track. We're moving along. And it turns into footsteps because the snowboarders, so he's been marching around and then it goes up and down and across and back and forth and crosses other tracks. And, and we really have a hard time uh, finding him. So sure enough, finally we do find this kid. He's now wet and cold has been down there for a long time and uh, it's, it's night. We don't have uh, night capacity. So luckily we brought just enough to keep him warm, a sleeping bag, a mat, you know, a candle booties for him. So he's, I want to say 16 from the city. He's actually relatively good natured. Uh, I'm not sure if he really knew the sort of uh like risk Old that he was dilemma. in. The, it, it, yeah, yeah. Didn't know The, the dilemma. survival but situation as, that he was yeah, in. So, totally. I mean I think for him he's like, Oh, two ski patrollers came over and put me to bed. You know, he got his uh, wet boots oh, off. Oh, what about of nice guys. On, put him in a, put him in a sleeping bag, put him on a mat. And he, yeah. he basically fell Do asleep. Do we get to myself.
0: build an igloo now? Can I can I make a no, snowboard? No, this would be badass. Yeah, we're just,
1: we're just in the we're in the trees so we cut down a bunch of we cut down a bunch of uh, tree boughs for myself and my partner uh scott Brazel, long time uh awesome ski patroller super capable dude long time fireman now career fireman uh but we we were still relatively new to ski patrolling back then so we and now we're waiting for the morning right And it'll probably be a fixed line rescue out of there in the morning but that's that's the move this he's too fatigued it's too difficult to travel um where he made him where he managed to get to just be too difficult we you know uh capable people could have slogged the way out of there but he he wasn't in a state to to do that so we elected to stay uh put him put him to bed we we spent a miserable night down there uh yeah, you know I'm like sure pu- was, pu- 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 puffy pu- puffy coat luckily it wasn't super cold i think the low was maybe minus four celsius wasn't snowing um so I'm we so laid on some survival yeah you know, we laid on some pine boughs <laughs> and, and we tossed and turned beside this guy with our candle going there. Interestingly enough, actually, we had an owl park in the candlelight on a branch and basically sat there and babysat us uh, for most of the night. It was, it was super cool. like oh, some sort of spiritual, spiritual safety element or something. Oh um, so, uh, yeah, mis- miserable night. Um, finally got... Uh, we actually just got at about three in the morning. I, I was sort of sitting there suffering. Scott had been in the military. So I was like, he's way tougher than me. Finally, I see, hear him cursing and rolling around and he's like, I'm so freaking cold. This is ridiculous. And so we both got up and stomping our feet and warming our hands on the candle. And then we sort of dried out a little bit, a few sticks. And then we realized actually we got enough stuff dry that we could get a fire started. And so, we were uh, warming our hands and we sat around the fire until daylight, which probably wasn't until maybe seven ish a.m. Cause it was in the, in the winter there. And, yeah. and then a fi- and then a fixed line out in the, in the morning, uh, two, Oh yeah. 200 foot long line to get out of the canopy there. And so that was my very first fixed line rescue. So took the, took the teenager out in an e back harness. He wasn't injured. He was just cold and tired. We woke him up in the morning. We're like, Hey, you got to wake up. He's like, well, where am I? I don't want to go to school, mom and uh <laughs> he had like a full he had a full night's sleep and, oh um, my god and uh and, and scott scott and i tough and toughed it 16 it out year and, old
0: what the heck Ken? yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah so i exited him out exited him out in the morning and that yeah that was my first fixed line uh experience which is which was great all turned out well um it's oh, super and, cool uh, man. Uh, uh, for, oh, god. yeah for and formid, formidable and great memory but yeah spending the night out that sucks for sure and luckily i haven't had to do that very much oh that's hilarious uh that was good and then school mom yeah oh yeah he was full, like he was fully asleep he just went to bed slept the night <laughs> slept through the night put on dry socks in the morning because we dried his boots out on the fire and socks out on the fire so uh, uh and then back awesome. then my uh my boss uh was very thankful so he bought uh myself and scott both uh mcgriddles from mcdonald's in the morning to thank us so that was very kind
0: what a nice guy. You remember those?
1: Make you remember those? McGriddles? I totally
0: do. Yeah. 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 Egg McMuffin Finger. on
1: a on an egg waffle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like a ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much what it was. Like yeah. That's right. That's, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks menu. for your
1: thanks for your service. Here's your McGriddle. Um, but we're happy. We're happy to do it. We're happy to do it. Oh my
2: god. I love and
1: then then and then the next the next fixed line rescue that I did uh this area called Pillow Biter. Um, this sort of really rocky piece of terrain that's closed that's closed great name. great name yeah it's closed it's got these big sort of snow mushrooms on almost a vertical surface of trees and, and rock outcrops so there's these big snow snow mushrooms that we call pillows uh and and it can be inviting terrain above when you go through the closure then it looks like it's good and then it just gets worse and worse and worse um until uh you're completely stuck and you can't go up and you can't go down and, uh, it would be yeah, easily a hundred foot fall to a road, a flat road below. So it, it could easily be fatal. So this guy's stuck on this sort of precarious snow mushroom. Um, and he had, he had thrown his ski. He had you know, maybe even just lost his ski and, he, and it ended up on the road below. And one of the ski patrollers on sweep. So at the end of the day, Uh, We ski all the ski runs to make sure there's no one out there and injured. And at the end of the day, the ski patroller skied by this road with the single ski laying on the road and no one around, but he curiously stopped and was like, what, what is this doing here? And then ended up making voice contact with this person and realized they're completely stuck. So that, that triggered a a fixed line rescue there. And um, again, the, so precarious sort of rescue there to just be placed on this snow mushroom didn't know if maybe a, a, a need to repel out of there or want to reposition or wasn't even sure if the snow mushroom was going to feel stable enough not to be uh, on belay there. So took some equipment in with me yeah. as well to potentially do what we needed to. Once I got on the snow mushroom, it felt relatively stable. And um, so I had the, sort of this backpack connected to the, to the long line not, not with me. And I elected to sort of leave it on the long line as I prepped this guy with his E-back harness. I remember watching the sort of kit of rope and stuff sort of just pull back for the helicopter to do its circuit. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if that was that smart to leave it there. You know, like (laughs) if I, if I need that, I like, it's going to be too late. So looking back, maybe I should have taken that with me, but it was, I didn't really want to complicate the scene either. Anyway, safe, safely, uh, safely removed Uh, that guy plucked him off of this snow mushroom. Um, Dang, and that was my I, first fixed line rescue.
0: You got to give me a, or, a little more description of a, a snow mushroom. I mean, I'm thinking just of a like a standard mushroom top, but it's a ball of snow that's, yeah, uh, like, so like a, for, for us, gold. we're in the, we're in
1: the, we're in what's called the coast mountains. And so our snow is relatively heavy compared to the rest of the province because we've got the big maritime influence. So lots of humidity, lots of thick, wet snow uh, okay. happens. And so when it snows super hard, the trees and say uh, rocky, outcrops will will hold these big um, the the, the oh, snow the will dome, build up like on them a a, dome a big dome yeah, 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 a big yeah. dome and then as it sits because snow is viscoplastic it sort of bends and twists and looks a little bit like dr seuss kind of yeah. uh trees and, it, and it'll and it sit it'll sit on these rocks and sit in really precarious places because our snow is is quite strong so not unlike alaska snowpack you get sort of snow sticking to this like incredibly steep and and uh Complex terrain, and so sure enough that that's he was on this snow mushroom on a rock, and kind of part of a little tree island uh, cool. that, that put him in this put him in a spot. So the pilot that did that rescue used to be a ski patroller as well. We actually have a number, like I said, of ski patrollers turned pilots, um, and he was a really men, uh, great mentor of mine too. He was sort of the rock and roll ski patroller when I started. He drove snowcats. He was a lift mechanic, smoked drum cigarettes, did all the rescues. He's uh, awesome. Awesome dude. His name's Greg Andrews. So shout out to Greg, who actually works on and off for Blackcomb Helicopters now and has been around the world uh, working and stuff. But early on there, he's still a ski patroller. We were avalanche partners uh, in 1998. We were doing avalanche control together. So um, we were moving through after a big storm, uh, the terrain that is generally open to the public. But before that happens, we need to do avalanche control and we'll use explosives and or ski through sort of areas that we think uh might have uh, avalanches you know that could be started by skiers so we need to start those avalanches or at least mitigate them before public's allowed to ski there so that that's how we and what the purpose of us doing avalanche control so greg and i were on so this cool, avalanche, by he, the way so he, cool greg and i were on this avalanche control route he was the route leader i was quite young back then and um he was he was super experienced and we are moving through this terrain and uh it was a fair amount of hazard it snowed quite a bit overnight like probably close to thirty centimeters almost twelve inches and uh it it was sort of warming so that the hazard was was a little tricky to um be sure of how the snow was gonna behave and so we're moving down this gully and we'd put in an explosive uh up higher and triggered some snow and then we're moving through this gully, and we had um what's called a convexity, so the the, the terrain sort of gets steeper and steeper as it goes. And obviously there's a lot of tension on the snow as it, as it sort of sits on these convexities because gravity's trying to pull it off. And okay. so we had this convexity below us and, and that's a typical zone that would, that would be a, what we'd call a start zone, a place that an avalanche could happen. And there was enough snow there that there could be a decent size avalanche. So we threw one explosive down there and it went off, but, but we, couldn't, we can't really see over the edge um, over this convexity. So we typically move, um, from safe spot to safe spot. So I was parked in the rocks in a safe location. And then as we do, Greg was like, Hey, I'll move through this lower convexity and I'll ski cut what wasn't triggered by the explosive and I'll move to my next safe spot and I'll give you a call and you can come ski down. And that's sort of how we move through terrain when we can't maintain visual contact with each other. So, um, He, he moved over the edge requisite amount of time went by for him to typically get to the next safe spot. And I, and I didn't hear from him. So I called him on the radio. He didn't answer. And I called him on the radio again and he didn't answer. And so I was like, "Mm, this doesn't quite seem right. So I moved farther down the slope where I could get uh, a visual over this convexity. And as I came over the edge, I saw, um, a significant size avalanche, what we'd call a size two. So big enough to bury or injure a person and uh the debris the the debris out in the in the sort of valley or bowl below significant amount of debris down down below and i was like oh that that's been triggered and he's not answering he's he's likely been caught that's that's what happened that's what's happened so yeah pretty harrowing experience for me for sure one of my most really when i think back to avalanche my experiences with avalanches and people getting caught my most my most harrowing for sure I uh, made the call on the radio, which we use, utilize a code uh, called code alpha. It simply means there's been an avalanche and someone's involved. So, Jeez, um, but we are on, yeah. we are on avalanche control. So there's not a lot of other people around, right? Where we're, everything's closed because we're moving through these areas uh, using explosives. So the next closest bowl had another group of two that were working over there doing the same thing we were. But so I called out code alpha. And then I pulled my transceiver out. So we wear a electronic device that lets us, uh, home in on the other person's signal for those that don't know how that works. So every person wears this electronic device that's giving out a, a signal, a tracking signal. Okay. And, and then if, if you want to find someone's signal, you can take your device and turn it to what's called search mode. And now it starts picking up the signals of someone else's that's on on send mode, if you will. So, so I'm skiing down this slope, but there's also still uh, this thing that we call hang fire. So the avalanche has occurred, but there's still more snow available to also fracture and flow down as well. Oh so I don't want to God, dude. So so I don't want to get caught myself. So I sort of moved into a, in this what's called ski cutting. Like I put my skis into the above terrain that still had snow on it to ski cut the rest of this hang fire, this hanging snow that might maybe catch and bury me as well. So I sort of got a reasonable result out of there. And then it started moving down the bed surface where the snow had slid. So there's really no more hazard with my transceiver out getting ready to go utilize this sort of grid search pattern to try and find my buried partner. And um, yeah, so super energetic, pretty easily uh, one of the highest, you know, sort of stake situations I've been in. My, bar- my partner's buried and uh, the clock is ticking. And uh, I, uh, when I looked down to the bottom of the debris, uh, I saw his hand push through the snow. And so oh. a huge amount, huge amount of relief to not have to, what can be a time consuming process to search him out with my, with my transceiver. So now I know where he is, thank goodness. So I'm able to go straight there. Uh, he's able to sort of dig part of his face out and be able to breathe okay pretty much right when I arrived the other team was able to traverse across and and join us and uh, and dig dig him out um fully and he had broken his ankle and hurt his back and um uh, but luckily otherwise not not injured and and not buried such that he was in a A place that he could have suffocated and we were there fast enough and able to find him fast enough that we extricated him safely there but he was injured it ended his ski patrol career uh and he went on to be he went on to be a pilot and we used to joke around he's like one day fishy people call me fishy because of my last name there he's (laughs) like i'll be the i'll be the pilot you'll be the rescue tech, we'll be doing long line rescues together, you know, and um, he was an optimistic dude, and and sure enough, like many years later, because he went and got his pilot's license, worked for a bunch of different companies, bro- you know, broke into the industry as you do, it takes quite a while in, in Canada yeah. to 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 get to that level, and then sure enough, he's back working for Blackcomb Helicopters, he's a certified rescue pilot, and, and there we are doing exactly what he claimed, these fixed line rescues together, so yeah, he's a great, he's a great, great great friend, friend, awesome mentor. And then to fast forward even that, he found himself working at another company in the wildfire repel program that I worked with. And uh, we spent uh, a summer feeling sort of pilot slash hoist uh, repel technician uh, firefighting together. So we've had this convoluted um, interwoven shit, interwoven relationship um, that's that's super special to me. And yeah, I guess fast forward to the next crazy story in Alaska. We had an engine failure together. Oh, and, um, what? What? And had, and had that. The two of us had had that. So we we are um, we are we are brothers to say the least. Uh, and yeah, he's he is an incredible friend, and we've shared some wild experiences together.
0: Um. Well, let's let's go. Do, we just, Do we just segue? Do we segue? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm
1: straight I'm, I'm jonesing right now. <laughs> Um, so I'm, so I'm ski patrolling and I love my winter job, but I don't have a good summer job. Friends of mine, um, a couple of friends of mine were wildfire fighters in the summer. That seemed awesome. Particularly this woman, Jen Walker, who is like another really great mentor of mine, ski patrolling and this sort of superstar mountain, mountain woman, um, that I really looked up to. She, got hired at the bc wildfire service rapid attack program so that's their province-wide uh repel remote access wildfire program that um is sort of long history revered sort of military style training difficult to to get um to get hired on so she's doing that so i'm enthralled by that i think that's super cool i had seen it as a kid in a magazine I was like, man, that's a, that's a cool job. So now I'm ski patrolling in the winter. I need a good summer job. I start trying to be a wildfire fighter. Takes me like three tries to be a wildfire fighter. Finally, I end up getting hired, and sure enough, I, I, I get accepted to this Rapid Attack program. So now I go through the training, and I'm lucky enough to pass. And um, I'm now a rappel wildfire fighter, which is also a formative part of my career and really triggered off the my my career in helicopter work i guess from there was was the rapid Tech program uh a super special place for me um uh, formed so many of my sort of risk management viewpoints incredible people incredible mentors crazy crazy experiences so in uh what is that 20 i'll be guessing maybe 2011 um for a few years Alaska gets these dry fire seasons they'd love to have repel access they do have smoke jumpers um are they based up there they might come up from the lower 48 but I, they I'm not they sure,
0: but I'm gonna go with yeah. whatever you tell me how's that
1: yeah I can't remember if there's if they're stationed up there might be a um a crew up there U.S. Okay. my U.S. friends sorry if I'm getting butchering that but so so they've got smoke jumper access they'd also love to have repel crews up there when they're busy and it's dry and they need the resources. So, but they don't, it's not the frequency up there and the commonality of needing that. Isn't that such that they're going to stand up a full program. So an agreement gets launched with British Columbia's rapid tech program for us to go and support them there. And, um, and so that had been happening for the last few years. And so sure enough, I'm lucky enough to be one of the people on rotation. At this point, I'm deep enough in my wildfire career that I'm now a hoist operator, repel technician. So the person in the aircraft deploying other repel crews and doing general fire operations like that. Uh, we get dispatched to Alaska. And so myself and Greg, this pilot that uh, was in the avalanche is now working for the, the company that provides the service there. And we find ourselves in Alaska firefighting together and we're loving it. And we're, you know, he's, he's like, look at us. He's like, we didn't even steal this thing. We're just racing around Alaska, having the time of our lives.
2: And <laughs> you know, that ass, yeah, dude, we, we
1: got, we got no, we got no business living like this. Right. <laughs> we're, 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 we're counting moose and having a great time and, and uh, firefighting away. And we've been uh, cutting helipads for this large campaign fire that we've been assisting. Uh, so repelling crews in and putting in, um, putting in, heli- they've been putting in helipads. So the crews, so the regular uh, ground crews have, have more access. And so, We've, our morning task was to repel a crew, put them in, um, uh, a spot that they can start cutting a helipad. And then we're supporting that crew and the rest of the fire with tanking operations. So dropping water from a belly tank in the, in the firefighting helicopter. And, uh, we're doing that. We had just got fuel and we found this small lake that we're tanking out of. So you hover like basically right at lake level in this uh, long snorkel. You've, you've seen the heli tankers, but for those that yes, um, don't know that, heli helicopters can deliver water in two ways, either on the, the bucket, the orange bucket, usually that people have seen hanging well below the helicopter or a tank that's fixed to the helicopter that holds 300 gallons and, and it sucks water up through this sort of long snorkel, like an eight foot snorkel or something. So you end up hovering like three or four feet off the water to collect your water, go fly back to the fire, drop it, and do that again and you go round and round and round and do that and so we're on the water uh picking up a load um and I'll never forget the sound of one so we're flying in a 212 so twin engine aircraft yeah. it needs both engines both engines to fly for the for the most part i'll never forget the sound of one engine decelerating to idle within the sound of two engines running right so there's sort of and everyone that's a helicopter person sort of knows the sound of a helicopter that's running well and the way that sounds and then yeah. suddenly this this deceleration <laughs> of a single engine and of course the rotor totally horn goes nice, off dude. and yeah and and he's like oh we've lost an engine he, he punches the load right away but we we sink onto the water and the helicopter sits on the water skids go in the water we're we're on the belly tank And in those very short seconds, I was like, I'm going to be in a helicopter crash. Like we're like, we've lost an engine and we're going to crash. And, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. He's able to limp his limp away on a single engine. We're in ground effect. Luckily dumps the load of water. So we, so we lose all the weight. We're in ground effect. And, uh, and luckily we've got like a, a decent breeze. So I think that was assisting us a little bit to be able to stay airborne on one engine. And uh, we limp, I don't know, maybe a hundred meters down the shoreline to, uh, to the swampy edge of the swampy edge of the lake. And, um, and we land there in the muskeg. So those that know muskeg is basically like thick enough moss that it looks like ground, but it's essentially floating on water. So it's just yeah. this mushy, squishy terrain that is not suitable to land a helicopter. So he, no, so we do land. Not we even do land. It. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so we do, we do land there, and and uh, so impressed with Greg's sort of uh, state of mind and flying ability. There, he comes down. We can't come down to an idle. So we're sitting in this sort of muskeg, but we're now we're sunk into the into the soft, wet moss. We run down, and he does his sort of diagnostics, and he's like, "Okay, one engine's down." We're not on fire. Uh One engine is running. It seems to be running fine. All all indications, and it's running fine. But we but we can't shut down there because we'd we'd tip over in the in the moss. Like it's just we'd just sink in and, and tip yeah. over. So I'm like Greg. Like wh- what are you thinking? And he's like, okay. He's like, so one engine's down. That's fine. It's shut off. One engine's running. He's like, I gotta move that. I gotta move the aircraft. Everything out. And I. He, and he, he's, he's like Clint Eastwood. Greg Andrews, is like Clint Eastwood. He's just like the, he's sort of this cool mountain dude. He's like everything out. I mean, everything. So I get out of the front seat and I climb into the back. We're in, we're on an idle. I open both sliding doors of the two twelve. all our firefighting equipment out into the swamp maps, sat phone. Like and he's like everything. And so all our equipment gets tossed out into the, into the, uh, into the swamp. And I'm, I'm like, uh, like I can probably walk my way through the bush. So down this lake, luckily on the lake that we were choosing to grab water from in that particular case is the actual, uh, built heli. So they, they felled some trees and there's a, a, a decent landing spot where fire crews had been staging and there was equipment. So you could land and shut down at this, at this, uh, fire helipad he's like, I'm going to try and get back to that pad. And I'm like, okay, do you want me to try and walk or do you want me to stay with you? And he's like, I, I wouldn't mind actually you just stay with me and you can help me watch gauges and stuff and clearances. I'm like, okay. And so he spools up on one engine and uh, now we're suctioned into the moss, right? Cause we're, we're down yeah. in the water. So he's able to sort of unsuction the aircraft uh, out of this out of this position we get airborne into into ground effect and luckily it's upwind to the helipad so we're able to just ground effect coast limp our way back down the lake um I want to say it was maybe mid morning, like eleven o'clock or something. So there was a decent breeze, and when I look back now, it was really important to us to be able to limp on one engine like that. You oh know? yeah, and the and yeah, the you're and the direction. Four
0: twelve on one engine. Yeah, that uh, yeah,
1: two twelve hp, not not a DF machine at that point. That that actually that aircraft now is DF, but um, but it wasn't at the time. And yeah, so we limp we limp back to this helipad and we land, and we sit down, and um, we're just like whoa and uh and he's cool he's he's cool as a cucumber i'm i'm you know i'm energized and uh i was like how can greg be just so so calm and i remember he went to lean over and uh make a sat phone call to the to the carrier and st- you know start thinking about how we're going to get this aircraft out and what, what's happened and notify the um the, the disp- dispatch and all that but he reaches over to use the sat phone and his hands shaking a little bit. And I was like, Oh, okay. He's human. He's, (laughs) you know, that was an energetic experience for him as well. Like his shaking hand. And that's like, okay. Okay. It makes me feel a little bit better. We, we get out the, um, the other fire crews, the Alaskan fire crews are there. You know, the the machine shuts down. They're like, Whoa, man, like what happened? We saw this puff. And then we sort of heard this noise and watched you got coast around the corner and disappear. We're like, what the hell happened? He didn't really say much of anything. And he's sort of a non-smoker at that point. He's always uh, been a non-smoker. But he's a non-smoker at that point. He's quit. And he just gets out They're Like everyone's sort of crowded around sort of high, high energy kind of conversation. People with me like this, that, the other thing, he just doesn't say a word quite calmly says, does anyone here smoke? And they're just like, <laughs> yeah, I do. He's like, I'll take one. And then, so we, <laughs> So we're, we're shut down, we're safe, the, the problem solved, we, we've sort of made the calls, we climb up on the aircraft, he opens up some cowls and stuff, he's like, I'm just going to have a little sit down. So we sit on top of this aircraft in the remote Alaska wilderness, and he has a cigarette, and, um, and, and we, share that, we share that moment together, and we sort of come down together after that, and we've talked, we've talked fondly about that, talked fondly about that since. Yeah, crazy, um, that, that, was, that was a crazy experience. Oh if we rewind gosh. if so if we re- rewind a little bit to sort of uh human performance risk uh reaction to to problems and stuff on a on a bigger conversation we had done i think every two or three years we did hewitt training there at the at the rapid tech program so underwater okay. helicopter training. training right yeah um yeah. so those love those it are the, I I know have what such it, a blast know what it is yeah of it. course Th- those that don't, you can sort of simulate it in a pool. We had this basic uh, cage that sort of represented a fuselage and you can put it in the shallow end of a local pool and you get in, a, you get in your seat and you wear your seatbelt and you get tipped over and it's a way to practice for people that work in helicopters to potentially do the survival, the best case uh, version of surviving being tipped over in a helicopter. And that's stay stay in your seat, orientate your exit open up your exit, then come out of your seatbelt and then make your move to to exit the aircraft. And it's quite a critical, right? As you know, it's it's sort of yeah. critical to do that. If you come out of your seatbelt and get disorientated in the, in the upside down dark fuselage, uh, you, you're sort of, you're gonna die from that. You're yeah, not you're gonna scared. find an exit point. So, and we had done that, I think that spring. So I had, I was current as of that year, having done that. When we sat in the water with the engine decel there. And I was like, Oh, we're like, if we continue to decelerate, we're going to tip over, we're going to rotor strike the water. It's going to get super violent and, and it's going to be a crash. And um, so we sat in the water and then so the, those seconds, which probably was less than 10 seconds, but it felt like an eternity there. You're like, I'm in a helicopter crash. I remember reaching for my seatbelt and all I could think about was like, I'm getting out of this freaking aircraft. Like I'm getting <laughs> out right now. And, and, and that's what I'm going to do. And so I broke all the rules of stop, wait for things to stop moving, landmark, your exit, use your seat. I I just, I failed, I failed miserably on my intentions. Mm. I didn't undo my seatbelt because we sort of were able to keep flying, but in my sort of panicked state, even with training, I, I didn't, I didn't perform. And that's a, it's a bit of, um, well, it's super, it's super humbling and it's a good recognition that it takes a lot of training to lock in those type of behaviors when your reptilian brain is 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 sort of going against that yeah
0: bro that is crazy that's crazy awesome
1: yeah wow and uh yeah they it actually it ended up being a uh a, a fuel starvation problem so the engine wasn't wrecked it didn't it didn't um like we didn't blow it up or anything so it oh, ended up deal. getting fixed in the, it ended up getting fixed in the field engineers came out to the field able to fix it they actually bore scope of the engine in the field um cool. so, wow. uh, yeah so th- those that don't know that they, they put a camera inside the intricate parts of the of the helicopter engine to make sure there's no internal damage yeah. um which there which there wasn't and they, so they were able to start it up and they flew it out at one o'clock in the morning because it was daylight up there in alaska <laughs> then the next day and we were back we were back in service in less than 48 hours. Wow. Yeah. Well, oh, that's yeah. great. Kep, yeah, I kept going. Yeah. Jeez. So, man. yeah, that was, Bro, that's one of a formidable it, experience in wildfire. <laughs> oh, my God. Doing it with some good friends. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did you have one heck of a good career? That's super fun.
1: It's been, yeah, it's been super diverse. And I'm super grateful for the combination of this sort of specialty helicopter work and wildfire fighting along with just wildfire fighting in general, those that have done it know that it's, it's its own whole own animal and then ski patrolling in the winter. And so I had these two awesome seasonal jobs that had, uh, you know, sort of similarities with respect to how you sort of carry them out, risk management, teamwork, communication, all the things. And fast forward, 2016, I did that for wildfire fought for 17 years. And, uh, and ski still ski patrolling for 26. And you're just like, Oh, right. Okay. I guess this is how, it goes, I, d- I do this <laughs> for this long, but it's so, I, so engaging. So engaging.
0: I, out of curiosity, did you have any rescues or anything that happened to any of the guys during firefighting while you were a long line and in short haul and rappelling
1: in? Yeah. Yeah, we did have a few. So in, I want to say it's 1994, the, the rap attack program uh, sought out, I, I think it was LA city fire. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it might've been County. I think it was city fire at the time to look into what it would be like to provide hoist, you know, build a hoist program around the, the wildfire rapid attack repel program. And sure enough, they were successful in that. So then when I came onto the program in 2000, there was uh, there was hoisting there, but we primarily used it for potential rescue and uh, extraction out of really remote areas. Instead of cutting a helipad or doing the long walkout, um, we were starting to utilize the hoist more for like egress out of these remote remote wildfires. Nice um and then and we had sort of a yeah because real quick a, let me a, let
0: me throw this out there for those that yeah. don't understand is you can rappel in uh quite fast and yeah. if you set up the the helicopter right you've got what's known as the fries bar which is attached to the ceiling and you can send it out both sides of the aircraft so you have doors on both sides so you can literally yeah. send down what like two maybe even four dudes at the same time be like mm-hmm. roll up into a hover rappel a bunch of dudes out you're on the ground, bada-bing, bada-boom. Yeah. It's so much faster than a hoisting. But at the same time, yes. hoisting, you're just like one, two, three, four, five, however many guys you get down. You're,
1: yeah, you're totally correct on that. So the BC Rapid Attack Program is a uh, single person at a time out of the left side, but off of a repel okay. bar. Uh, the, uh, actually, the um, aeronautical, uh, no, the aero design, aero design rappel arm, okay. um, which is a really, really nice uh, device there and we're on Still sky pull genies the pin, for those slide
0: the bar out put the pin back yeah, in
1: that's right yeah <laughs> I and, love um, so yeah so so repel out because you can go you can repel really quickly so three people repel out on a single rope uh drop that rope then there's uh 170 pound gear bags in the back that end up on this cargo arm suspended outside the aircraft and they get repelled out on their own individual ropes And so in, uh, you know, BC is super rugged, really mountainous, um, lots of timbered terrain and lots of really valuable timber because logging is a huge part of the industry here. So we're not only trying to sort of protect, uh, you know, sort of structures and values from wildfire, we're also actually trying to not lose timber value. So there's a long history of wildfire fighting here and remote access. um, Recognize that if we don't get there within a decent amount of time, these fires are so much more difficult to, Uh, So if we've got a repel crew that can quickly dispatch to a small lightning strike fire in really remote terrain and be able to suppress that before it gets a big head of steam and a bunch of energy built up, that's sort of the best suppression method. So that's why the repel program exists. So that's been since 1972, 73 is when it first started. So it's a long, long history. 94, hoisting comes into play. I started in 2000, the hoist exists. We use it mostly for extraction. Uh, I'm on a fire in the east, Kootenays, for those that know Canada, um, uh, near uh, Fairmont. And we're working on a big campaign fires, so mul- multiple crews over big distances. So lots of uh, machines and, and truck access and and 20-person crews working. And we are there supporting helipads and firefighting in general with all this, you know, there's probably 100 people or something working on this fire. We get a call someone's been injured up this, uh, cat line. So where a machine had sort of pushed into the forest, um, to make some fire guard. And we go, uh, we, we respond cause we're sort of the closest crew, but we respond by truck and then walk up there. But I, um, I remember just thinking, I was like, okay, well, if we go in there and this person's injured and it needs to be uh potentially a hoist rescue, I, I better bring my equipment, I better bring my repel stuff with me, my harness. Yeah. Um, so i march marching with that with some other, uh, first aid crew. And we find this gentleman that it's, that it's sort of slipped off the slippery, muddy embankment and he's, he's sort of his feet whipped out from underneath him. And then he fell on this like uh sort of six inch small stump, like right on his lower back. And ah. he was actually showing some, uh, spinal deficits at the time. So he had numbness and tingling in his legs.
2: Oh.
1: And, um, so an assessment there would have showed, you're like, okay, here's an injured, injured guy that likely has some sort of spinal injury. And, uh, this would be a super long carry all the way down this, this machine built cat road to a place where you could get a truck and then a long drive on fire road to, you could meet an ambulance. you like, this is going to be a hoist rescue for sure. So we sort of pulled the trigger on that and get, um, get him packaged up and, uh, hoist him out off of this cat guard and we're able to fly him to uh, the closest staging area and met an ambulance. And luckily for him, I think he had a lumbar, uh, fracture like compression fracture but luckily um, d- just the energy of the fall caused sort of uh just temporary um non and, and sort of neuro neuro symptoms and so he made it he made a full recovery um and and, and wasn't uh, paralyzed luckily but in the in the moment we didn't know what was happening so it was a pretty serious call but it turns out uh that's the first hoist rescue in the history of the rap attack program
0: oh shit,
1: dude! Um, so yeah so get to be uh get to be a part of get to be a part of that
0: uh, oh program and,
1: and so it's a little bit of a uh you know was you know in the overall bigger part of the forest service that that was um um uh what what would you call it yeah just just a a notable notable event of utilizing that that capability that had always been there for the intention of, of being able to provide rescue. And sure enough, it, it sort of went well and it went smoothly and thanks to the training. So that, so there was sort of good feedback um, and, and usage of that. And so we, we were, we were proud to be able to provide that service to the rest of the wildfire program who doesn't have repel. It's a centralized program that serves the whole province, right. um, but it's just three, three specialty aircraft and, and just uh, 12 at the time, three person crews. So it's sort of a, a specialty um uh, group there and there's a lot of pride in unit and um we're, we're really happy for what we train for all the time to work well and serve uh serve that that patient's needs in the in the best way possible yeah so really proud to be a part, part of that one that is super and cool and actually did man. did did that because i was that was only my second year there so i was the one smart enough to bring my rappel gear but um, a more senior person, actually that woman that I ski patrolled with that I admired so much that went to Rap attack, that sort of caused me to get there. She yeah. was, she was with me. So we had sort of been, we'd done lots of ski patrol calls together. So the first aid went well, and then she put my harness on and did the rescue. And I did the tag lining oh, um, super um, for cool! It. Yeah. And the but, guy uh, did full yeah, recovery, which is amazing. He did. He did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. Well done. And, um, yeah. So there you go. That's cool. First, That's cool. first ever, That's and then, and then over my career there, I've been lucky to be a part of a number of rescues. They don't happen too often. We did some civilian rescue. We did. We used to do some interface with the ambulance service before they sort of opened the, the provincial ambulance service uh, opened a base in Kamloops, one of the interior towns. So now they've got sort of primary, like scene response helicopter. But we still were responding cool. in um in some rescues, and we did a number for some firefighters. The tree planter that's that stepped on a log and it rolled, it it dislodged and rolled over him and uh, he had a bunch of compression fractures and we were able to, we were able to repel out and hoist him. Did a guy with uh, just a knee injury, but he was a long way from being, you know, to be able to to walk out uh, part of a guy that got, well, we, the initial call, we thought he got struck by lightning, which was, which oh was God. like full on but he uh it ended up when we responded you know you're like oh man going to a lightning strike you're trying to think back of your first <laughs> aid training like eg- exit wounds cardiac issues third degree burns yeah. fluid loss you know it's like oh my gosh what's this going to be like he the, he was in super close proximity to a lightning strike that struck a tree and they were working on this really steep uh sort of shale rocky slope and the, the lightning strike itself sort of knocked him off his feet. So he didn't get struck by lightning, but the strike was close enough that the, I guess the concussion from it all knocked him off his feet. And he ended up having a bad enough fall that he had, he had also hurt his back quite badly. So he turned into a, a hoist rescue as well from that. Jesus,
2: man, from
1: that call. Yeah, oh dude, it just gosh. goes, it goes on. Yeah. Not to mention all, all these, you know, lots of, lots of re- repels just into really crazy remote places in british columbia just to simply action wildfires and work with incredible people and be super super tired (laughs) god man i love what we do dude it's sick yeah it's it really is unique and i'm um, um i guess you know i see all these people that you interview doing incredible rescue work around the world and more way more rescue work than i do um i just count myself it's just such a privilege to be part of the unique opportunity that utilizes helicopters to do good work you know
0: yeah um oh, and yeah. it's
1: it's always that that's just been a draw for me it's just been a real draw and i'm i'm honored to be yeah in it and then and then the, the rap attack program and hoist operating it's like we there's not a lot of hoisting in canada uh there's the there's the military Uh, There's a police organization back in Quebec that's been doing it for, like, the Quebec Police have been doing it actually for quite some time. I think since 2000. Uh Um, Our Royal Canadian Mounted Police have just stood up a single hoist aircraft in the Lower Mainland in just the last several years. So, wildfire rapid tech program has has had had hoisting be part of their sort of skill set for a long time, but it's quite unique. And so, those of us that worked there are really the only hoist kind of people coming into the rest industry with hoisting experience so really lucky position to be in and then the one of the helicopter companies that had the the contract for wildfire fighting uh, and that we worked with uh closely they they sort of knew the capacity of hoisting so the owner of that company um you know reached out to the hydro world which they had been doing quite a bit uh of, of different type of hydro work and looking at what the what the needs might be there. And they introduced hoisting into the hydro world. So now for us in Canada, there's a couple of companies, including Blackcomb home helicopters um, that provides hoist work access to the power line industry. Oh, so right. moving guys on, moving guys on and off of uh, the high voltage uh, power lines and or the yeah. conductors um, to do maintenance and, and general inspection work and stuff like that. So that's, Really, where my hoist work comes from now—the um, nice. the work in the power line industry for hoisting—and then a little bit Sweet. of rescue on the side.
0: Sweet man, like I've Keep done a little bit of training long line stuff, uh, doing short haul and whatnot to the power lines. But
1: right, right,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I get it, I get it. All right, uh, I'll tell you what, man. Cool, and, like, it's been we, going. We've been, we've been rolling. We've been, I, I'm like you know I can't get enough of this. It's like, ridiculous. <laughs> I, there is a kind of a higher profile case that I really or rescue I should say um actually there's two of them that I want to talk about and one of them in particular was the winter Olympics that were up in your neck of the woods right. yeah what I I mean <clears throat> talk about an ultimate stage to have it happen and and stuff to go right in your favor I mean I again bummer from the skier he got hurt but
1: Brit what yeah. the heck
0: happened how how did you even get called for that that's like crazy. yeah right
1: so um yeah a high a highlight of my career for like for sure 2010 Vancouver Whistler combination gets wins the bid for the winter olympics so a bunch of the events are in in Vancouver and the skiing the downhill skiing is in Whistler and a bunch of the freestyle skiing and ski cross stuff is on some local hills so the downhill skiing is happening in Whistler. Uh, actual famous downhill course from, from the World Cup back in the day, no longer on the circuit, but a really revered uh, downhill course, one of, considered one of the harder on the circuit back in the day. So it's here. So then you're like, okay, well, what's rescue going to look like around that? And of course, we know in Europe, it, it's, that's what they always do. They use fixed line or hoist to rescue uh, skiers. Lake Louise, another ski area in Canada that has always been on, still is on the World Cup downhill and super G ski racing circuit um, has a long history and they utilize those parks, Canada rescue technicians that I was uh, mentioning earlier and they do fixed line rescue there. And as far as I understand FIST, the overarching um, uh, ski racing federation, as well as the Olympic federation, they, they mandate that you've got uh, helicopter egress ability for during these races so you're like okay so it's going to be fixed line rescue so then who's going to do it's going to be paid is again is parks canada going to come and do it um how's how's that going to happen and it turns out that it's going to be a volunteer opportunity that turns into like a little bit of a strange element because a number of the sort of you know experienced rescue technicians from around the valley here most of them ski patrol and um And otherwise they were doing lots of fixed line rescue kind of were like, you know what, like, this is a specialty skill. Like, I, like I want to get paid for this. And so there was almost this, you know, consideration of sort of a a boycott or something where, where they're like, they need to pay us. or we're not going to do it. And then they're kind of going to be stuck and they're going to have to pay us. The pilots are getting paid. And I'm like, I'm sort of back and forth. I see both sides of the stories. I'm just like, such a rescue nerd. I'm just like, man, this just seems, I just want to be a part of this. I'll, I'll, volu- I'm going to volu- I'm going to volunteer my time. And that was not without some criticism from people, you know, oh, you're yeah. Like yeah. a bit sort of scabbish maybe. Right. You're like, Oh, well now, if, if someone's going to do it, then, then there's Everybody's no opportunity for us it. to right. say. So, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, you didn't either anyways. all need to come I, together and uh, say exactly. no
1: right from the get-go. I, I, I or... So so, yeah. so apologize so you, to those You basically screwed maybe... everybody. Nice job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> apologize to those people that think it was the wrong idea. Um I, I I selfishly I just really wanted to be a part of it and I was lucky enough to get picked for the team um to do that amongst some other really experienced people. And uh it turned out to be the worth every penny I didn't make
0: that's
1: um, awesome <laughs> so yeah so that so that sort of came together uh the hashtag the, uh, yes, yeah totally so the the policy was that um you run a um a, wor- a world cup event the year ahead as a trial so we so we did a, a trial run on the world cup that came here the uh the was it the year before maybe two years before um and we did that Black home helicopters was the um uh was the aircraft provider and then, uh, coupled with the volunteers, those of us were, some of us were connected to the the company that manufactures the, the fixed line uh, equipment in Canada as well. So Merge co, um, being the the kit we use there and yeah, sort of built, built this sort of preparation around that. And so sure enough, 2010 shows up and, um, there was a, a four or five of us that were on rotation as rescue technicians. And, um, I was lucky enough to be on the women's downhill day of the race as the, as the staged rescuer. So we had the aircraft sort of parked, um, just a little distance away from the main grandstand and the finish line. And we'd fly up each morning and, and, uh, and sort of recce the course. There's some, like comms, comms lines and cables and other things. So we'd recce the course, make sure we sort of were landmarked appropriately to where we couldn't, couldn't do rescue any hazards. And then we park aircrafts rigged and we're just waiting and I'm standing in the finish line, like inside the, the security corral watching all and i'm a big a huge fan of ski racing um what you're watching all the greatest ski racers in the world do their thing with big jumbotron yeah. and dressed in a harness ready to go most people i think thought we were window washers or something which was totally fine and uh and we watch on the jumbotron and this woman her name's edith Mikolos, i think she's bulgarian if i get that wrong apologize for those that know who she was she has a, a nasty crash Ways up the ski hill crashes into the fences and um she's injured i think quite a bad knee injury so we watch that happen and there's ski patrollers staged all down the course that respond on skis and there's doctors that respond but the but the egress partly really everything the the granddaddy of the olympics i realize is live tv coverage so it's all about the tv timing so they want everyone out of there so that you know don't have this big tv delay uh, as well there's so much netting and and communication cables to exit the actual course itself and get onto another ski run is basically impossible to talk to toboggan them down like you would normal sort of ski patrol uh rescue of a person that's not critically injured but so ev- everything was fixed line off the ski hill because they they just wanted it to be quick so we watched this happen and we're like okay she's definitely not skiing out on her own so this is going to be a rescue so we'll walk over to the aircraft get Get uh, spooled up. We're in a twin star at that point. So spool up. I'm on the end of the line. I'm like, I I guess this is happening. Like here, here we go. (laughs) Am am I am I ready? I I better be ready. And the course is so those that don't know downhill ski racing as well, they water inject the course with with water. So it's basically frozen ice. It's as it's as hard as they possibly can make it. So you're not walking around in ski boots on a course like this. You weren't crampons to be able to walk on the ski on the on the ski hill. So uh, crampons on, ready to go. Uh, aerial evacuation platform uh, and and lift off behind this tree island and then as we lift up and come off the ground we're, I think we're just using a 125 foot line there I even even mean shorter than that and uh, we come into view of the massive Olympic grandstands I don't know how many people are in the grandstands but it's full on Olympics and then there's the massive media corral down below and hundreds of long white 300 mil zoom lenses from all of the media from around the world and I come up from behind the the tree island and I look to the I look to the grandstands and I'm just like I'm like this is the Olympics I'm doing this at the Olympics like it really was a meaningful (laughs) moment to me and then I see every single lens there turn and point at me and I'm like oh okay I, do this, not this screw
0: camera. this up do not <laughs> this is, screw this on up camera. I was
1: like don't don't pick your nose don't fumble so anyways luckily we go we go and land uh the pilot who most people would agree is sort of the Obi-Wan Kenobi of long lining a guy named Paul Copeland uh just an absolute wizard set down so gently such a calm demeanor just a, a really really uh great airman um set down gently no stumbling Get to the side of the run. The ski patrollers have sort of already prepped this person. She's got a, a knee injury. She's otherwise not as stable, so the pressure's sort of off with respect to like patient management. She just needs to be evacuated. So we get her loaded up uh, in the stretcher and back on the uh, uh, into position to receive the long line. Again, Paul Copeland. The the hook just comes in and it is just like direct to the hand. Super smooth. Make make the connection and and we're gone. Uh, up and out of there. Back back to staging land so we had two options too we could fly to this uh this um uh like remote trauma center that they had built like a military style uh trauma center or we could just go back to staging for non-critical and, and they would get ambulance access from there so the call itself wasn't particularly complex but um being a part of the only long line rescue in the olympics there it, it was an incredible opportunity for me really really proud to have been a part of that and again looking into it like stumbled into it nerd nerdly just wanted to do it wanted to be a part of it very lucky to be one of the people on like it could have been any one of the other rescuers you know I just happened to be on the day that on the day that it happened and I was I was sort of first up rescuer and um and that all happened, and it went smoothly it went smoothly and maybe the corollary to that story which is um was super special for me I we finished that day. Obviously, it was a buzz. It was a great day. The Americans cleaned up, by the way. Um, <laughs> Lindsey nice. Lin Vonn, I think, took the gold and Julia Mancuso. Oh, so the Americans yes, took right. all the medals. Yeah. yeah, took all the medals away, which, which is fine. They're spectacular athletes. But in um, America.
0: Yes. Yeah. Sorry.
1: So so the, the day finishes. I finished at the heliport, put her stuff away. We're going to do it again the next day for the Super G or, or whatever. I drive home. Everything's closed up here. There's no. There's really no vehicle access. But we, we were able to move around. I get back to my house have a quick shower I run down to the bus stop because there's buses every five minutes and you go back into the village where the massive party is happening and you connect with all your friends and you have the Olympic experience which I was loving each each day I was just like out at night you know sort of partying with the Olympics and all these friends having these incredible experiences doing this really meaningful and cool work so I jump on the bus I'm, I'm buzzing by myself i headed back into the village to meet some friends sit down beside this couple, uh, this, this guy, that dad and his son, his son's, I don't know, 10 or something like that. You're like, Hey, how was your day? Yeah. Cool. What events did you go to? Cause there's events happening all the time. It's like, we're at the women's downhill. It's like, Oh, that's, that's so cool. That was amazing. Congratulations. The Americans cleaned up. They're from California. Like really nice people. I asked yeah. this, engage the son. and like, what was your, what was your favorite part of the race today I assumed it was going to be his two American superstars like gold and and silver I was like what was your favorite part of the day and he looks at me he's like the man on the end of the helicopter (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like I I, I was like yeah this young boy like sort of vibrant like me with my uncle who's a fireman right like sort of just and maybe enthralled by what that all means like that was the thing that caught his eye and I was like well funny thing that that was that was me I that was me on the end of the long line doing that rescue and you know sort of his dad was interested and then we chatted yeah helicopter rescue and 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 details around that into the village you know 10 minutes sort of bus ride and high five on the way out and who knows where that kid is now and if that if that stuck but maybe like me he that that was ignition you know of who knows maybe he's a coast guard swimmer I don't know but it was uh it was it was really meaningful for me in the moment where I was just like I'm lucky I'm lucky to be here I'm lucky that my DNA found itself to the west coast of Canada to parents that let me be a ski bum that turned into a career that turned into being the person that gets to have those type of experiences and if that translates to another young person that gets inspired by the opportunities that really really um satisfying and meaningful opportunities that come from this industry that we're all in yeah what what a a privilege that's all i really can say about that. what a a privilege to pass on that stuff but yeah that little kid he's just like the guy on the end of the long line (laughs) super cool
0: dude that is that is insane that is so awesome yeah Yeah, that
1: olympic that olympic experience was unbelievable yeah just such such an incredible time
0: dude congratulations again great job you and the crew everybody on on scene on board and i get it like super easy benign rescue but super high profile and you're like
1: yeah yeah high 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 profile and as you as you well know the the freaking devil's in the details in this work right yeah devil's in the details it's like land smoothly don't don't trip on your crampons smooth to the carabiner don't don't rush slow yeah. slow it down no 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 fumbly hands on the it, you know we've all seen it with the hoist hook and the carabiners like you can just get fumbly when you're trying to be quick and I was like just just be slow be smooth yeah. don't don't have someone uh, we'll show you your video afterwards He's be like god I look like a spaz doing that <laughs> <laughs> bro that's awesome oh that's yeah great yeah, great. yeah, the, yeah great. the olympics were amazing olympics were amazing very and cool. with people i still and people with that i still work with now so you know with fond fond memories for that stuff
0: very cool very cool again congratulations and uh well done to thanks. you and your entire crew, yeah, yeah. The whole group
1: yeah well thanks ah. to the people that that uh ch- chose me as to be one of the people to get the chance to do that
0: that's freaking yeah. badass man i love that um you get time for one more
1: yeah let's yeah we're all rolling right cool
0: out. uh we are we are rolling yeah. so you um well, I have an article here, and it's it's pretty cool. This is out of CBC News, British Columbia. Uh, and the headline, world-class skier bounces back after traumatic brain injury thanks to breakthrough treatment. And the cool part about this is you're in this picture on headline news uh, on the toboggan, basically straddling the patient, helping her out or him out i don't even know him or her
1: Uh, yeah a female
0: female helping her out like what what is this so world-class skier number one awesome um traumatic brain injury not awesome and you're there to help her get to a rescue or or save her save her life
1: yeah yeah so that's that again that's easily seven years if not yeah seven years ago so in the spring at Whistler Black home, there is it's it's not as big as it well, it isn't really exist much anymore. But for a number of years, there's this thing called the World Ski and Snowboard Festival. So this big spring festival, bunch of entertainment, bunch of big snow sport events. So uh a high-level ski cross event, high-level what's called slope style event. So those of you that watch the X Games, um yeah. uh uh big big jumping competition, so freestyle jumping competition, both skiers and snowboarders. And uh at this at this stage of the of of the game this festival was sort of the place to be people from around the world would come the top athletes were there and um and we the ski patrol provided first aid for for coverage for that as well and uh it's the slope style events women's slope style um this woman named jamie mo crazy and i think it's all i apologize i think she's a park city girl Pretty sure Utah. If I'm getting that wrong, Jamie, I apologize. Um, and she's she's a, um, a professional freestyle skier, and she is going to do um, a backflip uh, on this massive jump. And uh, and she and she does it, and she comes up short, and she touches her ski tips on the on the knuckle of the jump. So those. Those that know sort of the way these slip style jumps are made. There's sort of this big elevated takeoff and then a flat spot and and yeah. then the landing surface that you land on and the knuckle is sort of that transition between the flat spot and where you want to land. Yeah. And so she sort of uh I guess under rotates a little bit and and um and the ski tips touch before her feet kind of come around. So they touch and immediately stop and then that pile drives, as you can imagine, her head straight into the snow at at, oh. uh, and these tabletops are like 60 feet long, you know, they're, they're, um, there's a large amount of air and, uh, and quite yeah. a bit of descending drop there. So she's got lots of energy, lots of potential energy built up to her, to hurt herself. So she touches her ski tips pile drives uh, herself into the snow and she's unconscious seizing at the bottom, um, with a, with a severe head injury. So our response goes into play. I'm not the first person there, another ski is there, but this is sort of a full scale response. Um, and so all all of our um available people are on this call and yeah she she's unconscious, she's clamped down uh, she's seizing, and everyone goes to work. Um, our key a l s and mountain doctors are there. she gets paralyzed um, with the with like the paralyzing drug to get intubated. Um, I remember starting the i v on her, and she was posturing so hard. Um, uh, to her, to her core, those that know that. So she was decorting it, So she's all postured up when people have bad head injuries, they essentially like clamp down or seize up their muscles go super stiff. And, and uh, I remember trying to get her arm straight enough uh, to get access to the to vein in, in her arm. And I, it, it took all my strength. And she's this tiny little woman. She's probably five, four, and I don't know, 120 pounds maybe or something. And I ended up having kneel on her hand, like with all of my body weight to hold her arm straight. Um, just to, to get access there, um, to the IV. So it's, that's a complicated place to have those kind of calls happening. It's high profile, there's cameras, everyone's watching. It's, it's, it's our sisters there. It's, um, uh, yeah, it's it's really sort of scary and tragic for everybody. She, she gets intubated and stabilizes as well as we can there. Um, we can't land the helicopter super close by, so we have to ski, uh, a few hundred meters to a designated landing spot um but she's she's now unconscious paralyzed so she needs to be bagged she's intubated and bagged so we put her on in the toboggan and then someone needs to sort of ride with her to keep breathing for her uh as we go so um i got on uh the toboggan and straddled her and luckily she's relatively small so it's sort of room for both of us to do that and there's a bit of technique to be stable enough to manage your 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 weight there and um uh, James the guy that was first on scene is super super good skier and um so he's able to navigate down through the rest of the course on the toboggan and um well i well i bagged her in the back of the of the toboggan to the helicopter and then into the helicopter down to the clinic where she then uh was again sort of stabilized but immediately flown by our b c uh, b c ambulance air ambulance to the primary trauma center um she it really seemed like one of those sort of critical head injuries where she had obviously a a significant bleed. And, um, those of the paramedics that worked on her that had seen that type of stuff before, you know, like, they're just like, she's not, she's not going to survive. Like that's the type of injury that she's she's not going to survive. Um, she does survive to the, um, the Vancouver general hospital, there, rooftop to the main trauma center there. And, um, and again, I could be getting this wrong, but I think it's it's new, relatively new technology, the sort of idea that you drill a hole in the skull to release the pressure of the bleeding that's happening—that's what—that's what squeezes your brain and kills people super quickly. Uh, that have these sort of pressure sensor slash gas sensors that let the those that are the experts in it sort of optimize the best way to recover that patient with respect to optimization and blood gases and all those complicated ICU type things. Wow. This is, I think the, I think the first time they used this new technology to, um, to give her the best chance of surviving. Then the long story of the long story is that she's American. Uh, they stabilize her enough to fly back to the U S and the last we hear of it is that she's alive, but, at that point, that type of head injury suggests that most likely she's like deeply head injured, sort yeah. of vegetableized patient. It would be what the history would suggest that type of injury ends up at. So we don't really hear much about it after that, but she, she survived. She's been repatriated to the U.S. and we wish her the best of luck. A year later, I'm at the same festival. There's these big uh, entertainment things in the village as well, these sort of film festival and, and um, a big slideshow. And I'm at that enjoying myself, this, the, this accident so long in the memory banks, the host gets up and is like, you know, we, we love our mountain sports. We love celebrating extreme sports, but at the same time, terrible things can happen. Last year, there was this horrible accident. Uh, this woman, Jamie Crazy, had, had this terrible head injury and uh, remarkably, and thanks to the efforts of, you know, the ski patrol and the medical practitioners down the line, she's, she's alive and well and here today. And I'm like, oh, oh no, God, I was like, Lord. no way. I was like, that, that girl is all I knew of her from then. I was like, is, is here, like back. So after, after the show, I w- wandered my way through the probably a thousand people that were at this big, big event. And um, yeah, I got a chance to sort of catch her attention and introduce myself. And I was, I was emotional. I think we both oh shed tears. I'm just, God, I was just like, dude. Jamie. I'm, I love like, that. I'm, yeah. Unbelievable. I think about it now. And like her mom was there and her whole family was there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm Brian. I'm the, the paramedic that ended up, you know, flying down to the, off the ski hill with you, you know? And we sort of just, uh, yeah, I had a stunned look and then, yeah, pretty mean, pretty meaningful conversation uh, there. And, and since then she's come back, she's back on skis. She's back skiing. She's had this long, difficult and incredible re- recovery. She's functioning uh, cognitively well skiing she got married last year got invited to her wedding unfortunately i couldn't go but one of the the als paramedic oh. that uh, that intubated her went you know and he was yeah, like it was tearful man like here's this here's this woman their family um a really quite educated family or her, her um sister was uh, also a doctor which played a big role in her in her recovery she has this foundation uh, I think called Mo crazy strong now, but if you look it up yeah, Jamie Mo crazy, her, that, that story, she's an advocate for head injury recovery. She had a bunch of different modalities. She's a public speaker. Uh, I think there's a documentary coming out on her oh, recovery. Awesome. And so, yeah, what is like, you know, just such wow. a meaningful thing to all we did was our best. It did not look favorable. Um, for how deeply injured she was and and to see that recovery and then make that sort of connection years years later those are um, those things make terrible things worth being a part of you know
0: yeah Uh, you know it's such a rarity to ever see people that we rescue and
1: exactly yeah for you to
0: be able to connect with her and oh man that's that is incredible. I absolutely yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah, So
1: totally Jamie, yeah, really, really. Pr- I guess proud to be part of Jamie's story there and see her, see her do so well. We Down that we had, an- we had another one. A guy, a guy cartwheeled through this uh, cliff section, smashed his head, unconscious, paralyzed. Into like not paralyzed, but paralyzed with drugs in order to intubate. Intubated on scene. uh You know, flew into the valley in like a. Even a few months later he showed back up on the ski hill to thank us fully wow. functional ski patroller or a ski a snowboarder. Yeah. Fully functional, back and healthy. And you're just like, man. That's and then incredible. yeah. And then the flip and then the flip side of that is is the is the relatively benign fall to paraplegic, you know, or quadriplegic, yeah. which is
0: yeah.
1: Oh which is terrible as well.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, oh my God! But yeah, the,
1: the diversity. You know, I guess. Well, gosh, as we sort of wrap it up, the 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 arena of ski patrolling for me, which I laugh with my friends and those of us that do it, because it's kind of this sort of ski bum job. It, it's professional, but it's not. It's not professional like Coast Guard rescue swimmers, or you know, look at look at the Travis County Star Flight, like these sort of big, incredible rescue organizations. Uh, here's their mat, like all over the world. You sort of need like just a ski patroller, but. It's this arena <laughs> of uh, patients and stories that uh,
0: come out of the, nowhere.
1: T- t- patients <laughs> in austere environments and difficult uh, management of patients and incredible teamwork and uh, tools and skills that are unique to to skiing and ski patrollers that make it really special. And then you add in the medicine, the rope rescue, the helicopter work. And um, for me, there's just nothing else I'd rather do. Uh, it's super meaningful for me, and I, I've been chased deeply by injury over my career, and and had to face in the last couple of years having to say goodbye to that career. Um, oh, and that's man. that's that's di- that's difficult, and uh, there's a lot of identity, as you know, wrapped up in all of that, and that takes its toll on the nervous system. And I've worked hurt a lot, and and been in pain. It sort of steals the joy of that job, and so yeah, um, I just more and more grateful for the opportunity to be part of that incredible program and group of ridiculous characters that I work with that are a sideshow at best until the call comes in and then as professional as anybody I've worked with when when necessary and, and and then you know you don't just go back to the station clean up and and wait you go back to what our our, our staging area cleanup and then decompress with Going to ski some more steep terrain or powder snow with with your friends, and recognize that this this privilege of sliding on snow gives us both our sort of great love in our life and our and our uh, livelihood. Yeah, but I don't know if I don't know if it gets any better.
0: Dude, that's freaking badass! Yeah. I love
1: it. Yeah, Brian, this, yeah.
0: Has, this has been incredible. You know, we we were supposed to sit here and talk a little bit about like your avalanche and prevention and safety, but. Dude, we're already like two hours into this. I know, so,
1: right. Well, I mean, I can well, let's let's touch on that because it's I guess a bit it's unique to the rest, I, to the rescue world.
0: I, I could do we could do a full asterisk episode on this, or you mm. can just give us a preview now.
1: Huh. I mean, yeah, I don't think it'll take I don't think it'll take too long. What we said, ski patrollers, we take care of the marking, we do the first date and the rescue, and then we do the avalanche control. Whistler okay. Blackcomb was one of the was one of the biggest avalanche like uh, ski area avalanche programs in in north america um and for those that don't know it we've got this ski area it snows a bunch a lot of the terrain is what's called avalanche terrain has the potential to um uh cause or avalanches be triggered either naturally they just happen on their own based on the weakness of the snow or skiers Uh, can cause avalanches to happen by skiing into places where the snow then fails and you could get slit you know it can slide and either pile drive you into the terrain below smash you into trees which can be fatal in and of itself or bury you and then um, and that can be fatal as well so in a ski area obviously the the mandate is that we can't have people exposed to that hazard Right. So then we have an avalanche program that makes sure we'll go and do our best to set off or trigger, or at least make sure that avalanches aren't going to happen within the ski area so that we can then open it to the general public. And their only thing that they have to worry about is skiing powder with the friends and have a great time. That's the whole, that's the whole point. Um, but depending on what happens, we, we need to go and mitigate that hazard ahead of time. And so we'll do that with uh, either just avoiding places, keeping things closed. Yeah. uh skiing into terrain and trying to trigger the avalanche ourselves on skis, uh which can be both harrowing but for the most part fun if you keep it within the sort of risk tolerance that's defined in our policies uh, yeah. sk- trigger trigger the avalanches ourselves to just keep the snow from um, move move the snow preemptively uh, and then in bigger and more hazardous areas we use explosives to control the avalanches and um, you go. Group- yeah yeah so groups of so groups of two called avalanche control teams uh, will move through a designated area called an avalanche control route uh, or route, depending on um, which side of the border you come from and and will a mm-hmm. combination of ski ski through ski through terrain, apply explosives, make sure we're happy that uh, the avalanche hazard, the likelihood of someone triggering an avalanche is low enough that uh, we're happy to open that to the public. And so we'll do that by hand. We'll just throw explosives by hand, which is awesome. We'll hang them on ropes so that they stay in a specific spot that we need them to stay. Uh, We'll wheel them out on these big uh, sort of industrial clotheslines over gullies and cliffy areas that we can't get to. Uh, We'll shoot them. We'll shoot them from a glorified potato gun full of pressurized nitrogen. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Called an avalancher. Uh, And then we'll also drop explosives from the helicopter. And so oh. all of those methods are fair game to try um, and and make sure um, yeah the hazards mitigated so oh it's an early God. it's an er- it's an early morning that's before the lift so we'll take snowmobiles up in the morning to the top of the ski hill we'll gather some weather data we'll use some like uh, electronic telemetry to look at further weather. There's one designated person called the avalanche forecaster they're responsible for Running that avalanche mitigation, and then they've got their workers, the avalanche control teams that will then move out onto the onto the different areas and, and go about our explosives control management. So, sort of get a game plan in the morning, use the computer telemetry to figure out what's going on, see what it's like outside, look at the temperature, how much snow, where we think the hazard's going to be, how much of it, how much explosives we need. Pain painfully and arduously uh, because their explosives are stored on the ski hill. There's a bunch of regulatory distance requirements. Uh, away from the public so our explosives are stored in these obscure places so for us to go get them we got a snowmobile go get the uh, uh the explosives or use a snowcat it takes us a while to do that then we've got to arm them apply the fuses and the and the blasting caps to them and then we head out on our on our routes to go uh send our explosives explosives out to yeah so it, it's it's awesome. It's hard work. You're working in the storm, you're hiking ridges in the dark and the crazy weather. Uh, you're working with one other person. There's, there's some risk involved for sure, but there's a lot of risk management, which again, I, I, I point out to it's that real time risk management from, for me is one of my most valuable sort of uh, ways to gain experience here. It's, it's your own risk. You've got a dynamic environment. You're weighing all sorts of factors um, and you're making decisions like in the moment all the time to sort of uh try and keep yourself safe but also make sure because you could just avoid it all together but then you know ski area open so to try and accomplish the goal so there's that sort of risk optimization part of the curve that we talk about in lots of different um talks we've been we've been a part of and uh and you're working with an incredible team and uh at the end of it if everything goes well you also ski some powder by yourself before the ski hills open and so it's a yeah i
0: need to come hang out with yeah, you a yeah, lot you do you do mm-hmm. wow
1: yeah yeah so that that's a big that's a big part of the ski patrol career and i think if there wasn't a big avalanche control program here the, that that's kept me for 26 years for sure between the sort of more dynamic rescues and the avalanche control every day is um is adventurous for sure and you just get to see the really the best parts of the ski hill sunrises, you know, and for the most part of my Ford, I work four on three off schedule. If it's snowing a lot, it's, it's four sunrises in these wild mountain environments by, by yourself, one other person. Yeah. It's it's a special, special opportunity. And it's pretty much just kind of wily coyote, right? Like light the fuse with the pull wire burns for two, for us at that elevation two hours in, or sorry, two minutes and, and kind of 20 seconds throw it onto the slope, wait for it to go boom, check that it's gone off see if you' got a result move on. Kind of strategic movement, lots of decision making, lots of good communication and ho- hopefully skiing good quality snow at the end of it. and then cra- and then crack it and then crack it for the public who is all your friends waiting in the lift line or me on a day of off watching my other the people that are working you know there's there's the, for the love of powder skiing there's a there's a family around that as well. so there's this great motivation. For us, that comes during ski patrol or just ski avalanche control. Rather, it's like let's, like we're we're here to get the hill open so that people can go ski their powder, and so oh. that's highly motivating, motivating and keeps it keeps it um, everybody engaged. And you want it, you want to do a good job, and you want to be relatively quick without without rushing or cutting corners. And yeah, do you know the the lots of buzzwords about being mindful or presence these days for mental health and the rest of it and. Gosh, that that work is—you know—being a hoist operator, doing avalanche control uh, on a big call. Like you are present, whether you like it or not.
0: Yeah. You know, you're right highly there.
1: highly stimulated and in, in the moment, and that's, I guess, served my adult ADHD quite well.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the adrenaline rush all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> forced forced to be focused. So I have that's, I guess, why I'm still drawn to it.
0: Oh my gosh, Brian, it's been amazing. All right, you know, I I tell you what, man. Unless you've got anything crazy, I'm gonna ask you one more question, then we'll cut it out because we we've been okay. going for a while, man. This, this has been fun. I've had a yeah. great time talking to you, man. This I know awesome.
1: we barely we barely even talked about hoisting, which is kind of where you and I connected by, but totally. That's, that's side we can, sidebar.
0: We can always uh, we can always do this. Yeah, as as I'm alright with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, P- yeah, yeah. P- line, uh, Power line workers onto live 500 kilovolt power lines with the hoist is also pretty wild. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my gosh yeah.
0: did you guys do some crazy stuff up there I absolutely love it mm. I need to come hang out with you that's all there is to it maybe well, I'll yeah, move you up know there the, for like a couple months you, hey, you, you.
1: you you, know I know we've talked about some of your behind the scenes different work uh, there's, there's great hospitality here we're happy to provide it Rob's 30 minutes down the road um, yes and yeah, so yeah you'll have a good time if you come here we'll show, show you around
0: right. I like this idea I like this yeah. idea a lot
1: What was the last last question? You're going to ask one last question. One
0: more more is with what you've got going and everything you've done 26 years of doing this. If you could pass on some good advice, what would it be?
1: Hmm. That's a, that's a good point. Um, uh, I have a great fear of failing in front of my peers. No one likes to do that. It's happened a lot. Um, and the the devil is in the details when it comes to doing this work, you know, it's the smallest things within your rescue work or your movement in and out of the helicopter or making connections or where you store your saline for your IV in a cold day like you know he just drills down and down and down into the details and try and work those the best you can before you're having to figure out the details in the moment because we all know that doesn't go very well you're you're never you're never going to make these sort of Jason Bourne-esque decisions when you're already in the black or about to tunnel your way into the black with um cognitive overload and task saturation and all the rest of that stuff so it's it's that it is um to recognize that if you think or feel like you're doing something cool there's someone right around the corner doing something cooler and doing it better than you are and um so that's 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 been great and i that was what brought me to heli expo i think from wildfire you know we are like oh we've got this sort of world-class program and like do we i don't know i've never seen anyone else's program yeah uh, i went my i went myself to heli expo fell into the the uh goodrich hoist user conference which was i think early days back then in 2015 and um and realized here's this exposure to all these people around the world doing you know that's when i first found out about air zermatt you just like oh like real rescue dudes. like <laughs> yeah not mountain, like tony ma- yeah a real rescue yeah, yeah, mountain, yeah, real mountain rescue dudes high elevation yeah. and so all you're like okay, right. So the next thing is seek out what other people are doing. And maybe when you look, we've all seen it on TV, like you see something, a short video clip, and you're like, what were those guys thinking? We weren't there. We don't know what, what the decisions were to lead up to that. Does that look like an error in that short period? Y- yes. Or maybe it was strategic or, or we likely would have made the same error error because you couldn't do it. Or there's an opportunity to train and teach, like like you guys at SR3, capturing the opportunity for those people that haven't had much exposure to what's out there, get yeah. a chance to be like, oh man, we 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 actually were lucky not to have made a mistake and now we learn more yeah. from that. So seek out who's doing what and don't be critical when you see something on the internet that looks dumb. Cause thank goodness there's not been a lot of cameras on me over the years. Lots of dumb shit. Um <laughs> For for better or worse, right? Whether you yeah, yeah. And, and that's yeah. the other thing. No one's in, no one's intending to be bad at their job or right. an idiot or make a bad decision. Um, and so, yeah, just try and be really really curious. Oh wow, there's this there's this crazy lesson to be learned, or this accident that happened. You, you like how and why and and props to all those people that have come to Goodrich and shared what you know potentially could be criticized uh, incidents and opened up their willingness to be criticized to to pass that information along to other people and so i always just try and find i'm just like just be curious ask curious questions about what was the decision making that got people to the point that they either were successful or had some sort of error yeah because it's man because it is right around the corner for every single one of us
0: i all right around the corner yeah yeah i i don't i mean i try to air my dirty laundry as well as far (laughs) as mistakes i've made and I had somebody say to me one time, like, wow, that's that's really um, I don't want to use the word brave. I can't remember what she said, but like, you're really putting yourself out there. I was like, yeah, but if I don't, then who will? And if if I don't admit my mistakes and try to help somebody learn it, then you're going to learn by making uh, a mistake, which might be uh, worse than what I did. So
1: a hundred percent. And I think everyone's fooling themselves if if, if they they tend to be critical. Someone airs or is willing to share something. They're like, well, that, that was sort of dumb. We, we all know that our, our number could be right around the corner or we've also had things happen that were a hair away from something terrible happening or we're lucky enough to catch it or recognize that, you know, it, uh, yeah, just no one's immune. No one's immune. Right. And, uh, and maybe props to, uh, I guess our more recent friend, um, uh, Dave Weber there from the program. And yeah, that, you know, like those, those talks on, on his, uh, advocation for, for people to one, choose the right people in your organization and don't be afraid to recognize that some people might not have the skill and then expect a high level of skill and, uh, and, and work hard to, um, keep what is what is you know he's just like there's that that concept of it being different between the person that malperformed sucking and that just the operation generally sucked and that yeah. usually comes from details and and missing skill and so just always uh not be afraid to be like yeah you that performance was poor and we can do it better and how, how do we how do we get there
0: yeah all right
1: absolutely um,
0: yeah I, you,
1: you and that's actually also that, you yeah, go ahead Oh, that's also what I love about this work we do is that every time I do something, I was like, if I'm 26 years into this and 17 to hoisting or longer now, and just be like, I could do that better. How could I do that better? Like, that's a little clunky. Like, I wish I was smoother on that. Um, And just always trying to refine, refine, refine.
0: Well, it's it's kind of funny because like we talk about this so much and not everybody can relate to what we do. Helicopter rescue and rescue in general is not a uh, large like scale of a job. It, it, people try hard to get into this uh, type of work and this career. Mm-hmm. But if you were to relate it to sports, right? Everybody has a bad game. Even professionals at the highest level being paid the most money. They have a bad game. They they had a bad pass. They had a bad catch. They they couldn't shoot the ball to save their life. You know it's, and they're they're at the top of their game. Well, us in our rescue world, where we're at, we're at the top of our game for the rescue side of things. You might have a bad rescue. It might show up on YouTube. That
1: sucked. You don't suck.
0: That sucked. Thank you, Dave Weber. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. Totally true. I think. I think about that we did a SAR rescue last summer with Squamish search and rescue with Blackham helicopters hoist rescue in the high alpine up the tantalus uh double lizard pick of these climbers that had gotten stuck in this gully and um pet Petzel lizard for those that know that sort of the specialty kind of pick off device for keeping the helicopter from being fixed to the rock wall and um yeah the first hoist i i picked it up it was okay the load was fairly stable it was a double up and we just pulled back kind of out of the gully and got it halfway up. And I was like, well, this this actually load looks pretty good. It's going to stay smooth. And then sure, sure enough, it got some oscillation from the rotor wash and then like quite a bit of momentum. If there's a camera crew filming a, um, for a documentary sort of different from that, but happened to be there. And yeah, sure enough. I'm like, great. Just got a freaking <laughs> ch- shitty hoist on camera, yeah, oscillating, yeah. you know, fighting it, messy, all, all of that. And I was just like, great.
0: And the next one you do will be smooth as silk, too.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, we went back and grabbed the other one. One I was smart enough to to, to back out and get this poor momentum, which I should have done in the first place. But it just looked like it was going to be a smooth pick, yeah. and so, anyways, yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, yeah. Someone's going to look at that and be like, what an idiot. And I'll I'll take it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: Nope, it was a bad hoist. One bad hoist. Yeah, the next one is yeah. beautiful. I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> Brian, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. You have given me a ton of your time. The stories, my gosh, you, you're right. we barely even touched in the like helicopter hoist stuff and rescue stuff. Mm. Good lord, we could keep going. You know what? Maybe we will. Yeah, it's
1: been fun. We'll get
0: we'll get back together. Yeah, we yeah. we
1: can. It's oh. been fun. I'll, uh, I'll I'll thank you for bringing the rescue community together um, with this podcast and, and being able to hear people from around the world, do what they do in different places. I'm ultra, uh, admiration for the rescue swimming, uh, group that's out there that the water, water picks moving boats, uh, that's just a whole nother arena that I have nothing like no, no experience in and, uh, know that it's hard for sure. And so, uh, props to the group that's doing that. Um, and a huge thank you, I would say again, to Goodrich Hoists for being willing to open up that, that Hoist user conference. Anyone that hasn't been to that that's in the Hoist Rescue or Hoist Work Game, that's a place where you can see all the people from the round, around the world doing that. And uh, great friends like yourself uh, first met Tony. When I first went there, I met Tony Weber in my first year. And he's, as we know, like the original OG there in San Diego. Sorry, uh, oh, yes, San Diego guy. Sheriff. Yeah. Um, and he was super good to me. I think he could tell I was relatively new to that program he, he was ultra hospitable, He's become a good friend, bounce all sorts of stuff off of him and all the rest of the people. Uh, all of our crews are there at Arizona, Matt, which I, which I met and just like cornered him and picked his brain on all sorts of stuff. Um, and was l- was well, lucky enough to now call him a friend and end up at see their program deeply. Yeah. Just like what an opportunity to get around the world and see who's doing what. And i am learned a ton. Yeah. So. And had Sick. a ton of fun. We realized it was this really great family, right? And that, that SR three crews come together with a bunch of awesome people. Yeah. Uh, oh,
0: it's been a blast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And now uh, we look forward to it every year. Yeah. Thanks, man.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I, uh, I'm coming up to Whistler one of these days. Kay. I'm going to hang out with you there. And if I don't Do see you there, I'll see you at HAI.
1: Yeah, you will. Yeah, you will.
0: Awesome. Brian,
1: thank you and, so much, um, man. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I look at Instagram a lot, but I don't really post anything, but, um, it's just my name there brian fishbook instagram if somebody else has got questions about uh, any of that stuff
0: i'll make sure you're tagged how's that
1: okay yep okay so you can
0: go to my instagram and then find brian hey
1: roger nice one
0: (laughs) awesome brother i will catch you later and with that ladies and gentlemen we are out of here thank you for tuning in we hope you enjoyed this episode of the real rescue podcast Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off, but before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q dot com. You can also check us out on our webpages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at therealrescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.